Welcome to the Neon Bumpers! I'm Leland Steve. And I'm Moby. And Leland, five, the number five. Do you know what the number five means today? Five is usually the point in any series where it starts to significantly go downhill uh, before potentially rebounding once they get to about 12 or 13 seasons. Like Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> that would be your fucking answer. <laughs> I'm Leland. I have five reasons why. <laughs> no, Leland. It's been it's been five years since we started this in your steamy hot July living room. Five yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, quite an accomplishment. I will say that. Uh, the temperature in my recording space has not changed in five years. It is still significantly (laughs) warm in here. (laughs) Obviously, many other things have changed. We have since uh, lost uh, one of our co-hosts in this five years, picked up having regular uh, and changing guest hosts. But it wouldn't be five years, of course, without the OG third seat. So let's Get right to it. Let's call him up from hell. Let's start the summoning. Start the oh, summoning. Okay. I have it. Oh, uh, Marty. Scruff. Okay. McGruff. Chicago, Illinois. 60652. That really is Did hell. So. <laughs> Did it work? Do we hear the it laugh? And I'm Marty. <laughs> hey! <laughs> I've been being tortured for the last three years since the last episode. <laughs> it hasn't been that long. You were here <laughs> like a year ago. That was I? We did a, I think we did a Halloween episode in 2021. Or maybe it was 2020. Well, that just ruined the bit, huh? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Sure. <laughs> Eight, 18 months. <laughs> well, you know, we've, we've tried to have you on at least once per year. I think the first year you were quote unquote in hell. Uh, we had you like twice. Um Satan's been a little tougher to negotiate during COVID, so he's been bu- he's been pretty fucking busy down there. Not, not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, all these people arriving with comorbidities, so you know it's just it's an amazing thing. But we're 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 happy to have you here in a slightly less warm uh, place for a few hours. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, are we just gonna talk about vaccines the whole time, or is this still uh, definitely uh, pop culture? Not. <laughs> It's, yeah, I, why, I thought this was the, the Vax cast. I thought I put this together. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking at the list of things you sent me, and that's pretty much every segment. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Crazy About Vaccinations. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, guys, honestly, five years, like, it's, it's been crazy. So much is has changed so much has changed within the podcast and before we hit up uh, the segments and listener if you saw the facebook post we are going to hit up all three segments we haven't done that in a fucking long time that's definitely been years but we're doing it for you because we're doing it for the number five but yeah i just want to go around you know just to ask you guys what memories come back about the podcast you know just basically open forum and uh you know leland is our ornery leader what uh, maybe let's start with you? Some memories you had of the past five years, some crazy moments, stuff you love, stuff you hated, just whatever comes to mind. 
what, what actually always kind of sticks out to me is, uh, I mean, we haven't done a bonus episode in quite a <laughs> quite a long time. Uh, I think maybe I think Resident Evil Eight was a bonus episode, maybe with Marty. I'm not sure, but when we went and saw Blade Runner 2049 and came back right after and recorded the bonus episode review for it. <laughs> By the end of it, it was like two in the morning and we just sat through a three hour movie and came and sat and recorded for two more hours. It was like so fucking, and then Marty had to fucking drive home too after that. <laughs> oh yeah. I, re- I remember that drive home. It was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to stay awake. Then he got in a car crash. Now he's in hell. Oh, no. <laughs> we did it. No, I appreciated that. Now, you guys were making like my movie fantasy come true. You know, watch Blade Runner 2049 and then podcast about it immediately after. I'm sure if I mentioned Jared Leto one more time, Leland would have punched me through a Christmas tree, even though it was September. But <laughs> would have happened. Uh, Marty, what what are some memories that stick out for you? Uh, I was thinking about this earlier, the seeing Dunkirk, uh, we went to go see Dunkirk and and, like we talked, talked before seeing Dunkirk and we got so excited about doing the podcast that was like, I think right before we started recording maybe, or we had maybe recorded one or two at that point. And it was just all podcasts all the time, all of our discussions. It was basically a podcast without recording when we talked about it. And then of course we had uh, varied opinions on the movie, so it wasn't uh, maybe uh, maybe as good as Moby would have hoped. But uh, yeah, that, that one sticks out for me for sure. Well, what was weird about Dunkirk was it isn't the traditional kind of film that we cover on the podcast, like throughout the whole five-year history, because it's kind of non-nerdy. It's, it's historical. And I don't really know why I never noticed that. Maybe it was just our love for Harry Styles. <laughs> oh, that yeah, that's that's got to be it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's a good memory. I mean, myself, who's listened to some of the back catalog, and I brought this up at like the the two year, three year anniversary. So you know, just how bad the first episode was, how crude it was. Like you could tell we were genuinely excited, but devoid of any sort of talent or professionalism at the time. It's like, oh, we're recording ourselves talking about stuff. Let's sound like we know what we're talking about. I mean, I've been doing that for five years. I don't know what you're talking about here. (laughs) Okay, you know, I can probably bring up this story. Another interesting one was, and he's my friend in real life, and, and I'm sure he's listener, but Dragon, who we had as a host, he brought like a bottle of whiskey and was just like, gulping that whole thing down during the recording session you could tell he was like getting progressively drunker and i was like do i need to drive this dude back home after i mean his drunkness was more just him being like chill and quieter but it didn't do much for him as a host (laughs) getting progressively (laughs) quieter throughout the episode other interesting memories some of these are kind of like outside of the cast itself there was i mean i'm just gonna say it I know he might be a listener, but I was invited to guest on a podcast. And how do I be very polite about this? The host was not particularly confident or extroverted or prepared. And two things happened with that. Number one, it was really difficult because I basically had to run his own podcast or like keep it going. That would be obvious if you listened to it. And number two was I made the the bullshit mistake of not inviting you to be on as well. 
and that upset you, but then you also dodged a bullet. So it was just, <laughs> it was just a weird situation. Yeah, even I've been on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then my my ultimate like lowest moment was forgetting that we were supposed to guest on you know Uber guest Shannon Perola's podcast, and I went for a run like an hour away from home. Um, and I got this text in the middle of a trail and I was like, shit, I, I am, I am a bastard and there is nothing I can do about this. Yeah, that was, that was funny. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I made a great episode solo, so it's fine. <laughs> the other interesting thing is, you know, having legitimate guests that are legitimately stars in their various fields. And I'm interviewing them as if it's like, you know, do they, you know, should they have a right to be on the podcast? And it's like, you know, you want to make sure that these people are legitimate and stuff like that. But it's just, it's a weird experience because it's like, we're not professionals, but they are in their craft. And a lot of them are very excited to come on. One of the things I can say that we can pat ourselves on the back is everybody we've ever had on has said, hey, I'd be willing to come on again. And some of them actually persistently asked to come on, which is nice. That's either because those individuals enjoy listening to their own voice, much like I do, or we're just fucking likable. Can only be one of the two. <laughs> they, they, like, okay, maybe 25% of them gravitate a little bit towards me, but in general, they like you and they publicly state that they like Leland. <laughs> I mean, Shannon has her fucking merchandise i love leland yeah. line which makes me gag <laughs> yeah how to catch bulimia look at the leland i love leland line <laughs> anyways that's just my spite and my ego i mean question for marty uh this is kind of like a deeper question um but when you decided to leave and go to hell uh do you feel in retrospect that was the the right decision for you it certainly was at the time but in the long term have you missed the podcast do you still even listen to us yeah i listen uh once in a while it depends on the guests really um yeah i i just i would have changed how i left the podcast i was really stressed out about going to school and changing my schedule around that i kind of panicked about time because we had moved to uh you know a 30 40 minute drive away so it was a bit further than it was before because I think when we started, it might not have had that drive. I can't remember. But um, no, actually, you know, when we started, I still had the drive. So I don't have that excuse. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I probably would have just changed it and asked to uh, cut down how often we were we were recording. Because it was just probably too much of a time commitment. And after I left, the podcast started doing once monthly anyway. Yeah, so. and you, honestly, you leaving was the catalyst for that. So I, I think Moby and I have had this conversation too with each other. Like, we, why didn't we just do that? Like, why wasn't that like a, an offer? Of like, well, you know, we'll go, to, we can do once a month if you, that means you can still stay on. Or you know what, even if we were still doing twice a week, like, you could just come on whenever you had the time. We would just, you know, keep you abreast of the time of the record. But, I get how stressful all that shit was. Yeah, I uh, I didn't do a good job of explaining it. That was a big issue. And I was like, I was feeling really overwhelmed with the driving and the time commitment. And it, I now I would be like, well, that's fine. But especially now that we don't have to all gather in the same place. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's all said and done. I'm in hell now. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
You know, I, I, I do really appreciate because every time we've asked you to come on, you've been gracious and made the time. And we want to continue to do that. Well, I, mean, I, ha- I have to promote my cameo. It's not making any money. <laughs> cameo or OnlyFans? <laughs> why, why not both? For explicit. You have the first Factorio OnlyFans, you know? You just keep those choo-choos going <laughs> for a certain amount of money. You just... I've optimized my dick. <laughs> <laughs> you just make the rails in the shape of boobs. <laughs> <laughs> that's good oh man now i have that's to make good. a dick-shaped train route <laughs> no you don't because yeah, you could you do not do it. have to you do that easily do it you're not contractually obligated to do a dick railroad you can make a dick and balls and then make the base inside of it oh boy. <laughs> good uh, just wait for valheim to get steam steampunk stuff and then you can make <laughs> a train from valheim <laughs> <laughs> He'd have a train that goes like directly to where trolls spawn, like five feet away, so he can ride out there, beat the shit out of the troll, and take his ore back home. <laughs> he would do that. Yeah, that's just <laughs> smart. <laughs> well, that's awesome to reminisce, uh, listener. I mean, uh, thank you for joining us yourself all these years, and here's to five more years of Marty coming on, guest hosts, uh, pretending to be more professional as we start to hit our 40s. Yeah, but uh, let's let's jump into some banter here. We've got a huge episode planned. Marty, why don't you start us with the banter? Actually, I did bring something up because I just saw it yesterday and it was kind of cool. So Marvel finally announced uh, what their Phase 5 and Phase 6 is. Phase 4 ha- is ending with Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever. So that's coming out in November. And then we're on to Phase 5. And Phase 5 does very little for me overall. I thought it was kind of other than some Daredevil stuff. So, Moby, have you seen this? No. No, I haven't seen it. Okay, so uh, the breakdown is uh, it's going to be the third Ant-Man movie. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Then Secret Invasion, which is a TV series starring uh, Samuel L. Jackson as, uh, of course, Nick Fury returning. And then also having uh, Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, which is uh, the scroll from uh, uh, Captain Marvel. Then Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which will be the last Guardians film, apparently. Then Echo, which is a continuation of Hawkeye, uh, also bringing back uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and Charlie Cox from uh, the Daredevil series from Netflix, which is pretty cool. Loki Season 2. Uh, still haven't seen the first season there. The Marvels, which is going to be Captain Marvel plus Camilla uh, Khan, which is from the Miss Marvel TV series. And then Blade, which I think is going to be pretty cool. Uh, it's a reboot of Blade. Whoa. Yeah, that's uh, next November, actually. And then Ironheart, which is a basically a, another Iron Man, but with a character who's going to be introduced in Wakanda Forever. Agatha, Coven of Chaos, which is a, another series. Fall, it's like a spinoff of uh, WandaVision. Uh, Daredevil Born Again, which apparently has 18 episodes. I know. Holy crap. I- I'm thinking they mean the series and not the season. I don't know. <laughs> I've heard otherwise, but... Okay, so yeah, t- 18 episodes in today's day and age is crazy. Captain America New World Order, um, starring Sam Wilson as uh, the new Cap. Thunderbolts, this is a series I'm not overly familiar with, um, but apparently they're like uh, anti-hero. Yeah, it's Marvel's, it's Marvel's Suicide Squad, basically. 
Oh, okay, cool. And then that's the end of phase five. Uh, but phase six, which I think is going to be a bit more interesting. So far, they've announced Fantastic Four, and then Avengers, the Kang Dynasty, and then six months later, uh, which I think is going to be like their huge you know, blowout film of this uh, last uh, sort of multiverse series they've been doing, is going to be uh, Avengers Secret Wars. Uh, and that's probably going to be the big, big one. But yeah, that's what they've announced. So quite a bit for the next two year, two and a half years or so. Still, you know, nothing really blows me away in in some ways. I, I mean, other than the Daredevil stuff's kind of cool. Uh, I'm a little bit, I don't know, underwhelmed, maybe. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I, I got a couple questions for you. Number one, Blade, do you know who they cast as Blade? Is he like famous? Yeah, he's in. He's 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 actually in a Marvel. Yeah, he was in. Uh, he was in Luke Cage, the first part of season one of Luke Cage, right? Is it that the same actor that I'm thinking of? Yeah, he played Cottonmouth in Luke Cage season one. Yeah, it's a uh, Maher Maher Mahershala Ali. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay, cool. And for the Avengers, have they listed which Avengers are going to be in it? No. It's interesting to me one how fast now the phases are moving. Uh, and now, right, because we had three phases to, uh, in a decade uh, up until this point, right? Yeah. So that's kind of blowing my mind that we're already like, and like, it's like 2024, like the end of phase six or whatever, or, or 2025 or 2025. Yeah. So that, that's kind of like, wow. And uh, I, I, I understand though, because now with their streaming service, they have this avenue of so much more content to easily be put out there. Like I've watched, I've watched to date every, every single one of their, uh, TV series. I have enjoyed them all. There's definitely varying degrees of quality. I just actually finished watching Miss Marvel, which I, I really enjoyed. Uh, I thought the character was interesting. I liked all the, the representation of the Pakistani, uh, cultural and, and like, cause she's Kamala, uh, Kamala is calling his Muslim as well. So there's that kind of representation, which is cool. The story on it was like there wasn't much of a plot. It was I don't know. It's it felt like more of a setup for the Marvels, I suppose. I'm not sure how to explain. It. I don't know. It was an enjoyable watch. I mean, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I'm just wondering if there's going to be a series uh, representing white guys soon. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe one. Day. Moby's behind that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Always behind that. I, I would love to see Chilliwack culture well represented. <laughs> oh it would be good. Yeah. I want to see some raised trucks with some balls hanging from the fender. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I am I'm on the same page with you though that nothing immediately strikes me out as like, whoa, cool. Um other than I suppose like maybe the the Kang Dynasty stuff because Kang the Conqueror was introduced in Loki season one. And this whole thing is like a multiversal arc through these three phases, right? That's their whole shtick for this, right? And we've seen bits and pieces of it, some of which kind of really confuses me, most specifically how Loki factors into the multiverse and how it functions uh, in relation to, like, the latest Spider-Man and uh, Doctor Strange 2. Some I don't really understand how it makes sense. With the variants and the TVA pruning variants. So there's there's a, according to the TVA, which is this association that is outside of time, right? There's one true timeline that they're responsible of making sure is maintained and, and, and kept in order. 
if there is a branching off of this timeline, it creates what they call variants, which is how we, uh, part in the Loki series, how you get different versions of Loki throughout that TV series. But they prune them is what they call it. And they like literally like erase them from existence. So I don't know how that factors into the different multiverses, which we see exist even with the TVA pruning from. So I don't understand how it works. It seems convoluted as fuck to me because they wanted to do one thing with Loki, which is interesting. But then they want to do actual just regular multiverse stuff, which is can also really be interesting. So I, I don't know. It confuses me a lot, and I don't, I'm not really sure exactly how it's going to wrap up. But the Kang stuff is cool. Clearly, there's direct implications from how Loki Season 1 ended that we're going to see that are now really rippling. Which is interesting to me how a single series seems to be the catalyst for everything else down the line. And obviously, maybe it doesn't shape up that way. And, you know, in the next few, what we get coming out, maybe it's there are additional ties to it. But, like... It doesn't seem like it from what they've shown. Like, I mean, She-Hulk. She, what's She-Hulk? She-Hulk's gonna, not going to have anything to do with multiverses, right? Like, I, I don't know. It's confusing me. And it's a lot different from the first three phases. It feels like there's no rudder. It just feels like we're just floating out there. And they're introducing a lot of new and interesting and different characters that are going to bring in their own fan bases. Most of them I'm actually not familiar with. So that's also part of why I'm like, okay, this could be cool, but I don't really know why I should be hyped for it. You know, unless other than there being like an interesting trailer that draws me into it. But on the surface, like Echo, I mean, the Hawkeye series was fun and, and it was funny. It wasn't the best one, but it was really enjoyable. Like Jeremy Renner is great in it. Uh, and that character Echo was the least compelling part of that series. So I, I don't know. But, like Marty says, if it brings in more Daredevil, fuck, I'm on it. I'm I'm in it. I don't care. I'll take it. Certainly what sticks out to me as Marty read out the phases is the sheer quantity in phase five. Like, I, I was thinking in my head, okay, now this must be the last one. Okay, now this must be the last one. Like, that is a lot of movies and especially TV. So, like Leland's saying, you know, they've got this platform now, Disney Plus, to mass release and i guess they're really taking advantage of it well the interesting thing too is uh, how wakanda forever is ending phase four and typically when they end a phase they go out with a big bang so i'm wondering if wakanda forever is going to be adding some stuff that really builds off all the multiverse stuff we've seen i mean it, it hasn't like leland's right it hasn't really felt like it's building to anything and, and even when there's multiverse stuff in all a whole bunch of different films now it all feels disconnected almost like the rules vary film to film moby have you seen the new spider-man yet i have not i really want to i was waiting for it to be on disney plus it very well may be just not suggested to me well i i highly doubt it'll be on disney plus it's a, still a sony property disney plus doesn't oh, have any okay. of those Whoops. tom holland spideys they are on amazon i believe yeah, the new one is. I think it just got released on there. But anyways, like your comment, even if you're going to spoil it, spoiler alert, I don't care, but I'll still watch it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not planning on spoiling it here. I'm just curious because I think that's that's been the highlight of the multiverse stuff for me. Um, you know, I, I did like Doctor Strange too, but 
again, it just feels like a whole other thing, and I don't really know where they were going with it, and uh, it just feels like they decided this would be a fun plot device for the next two years, and let's put it into a whole bunch of series, and, you know, it takes away from the impact. You know, there, there's a couple scenes in Doctor Strange 2 which could have had some really cool impact, and both because of production and because of the fact that you've seen it now, bigger and better in in, uh, Spider-Man six months before, it loses its impact. And I wonder if that was also because some of these movies got moved around a bit. Uh, I I guess originally some of them were supposed to come out in 2021, and then there's been delays because of COVID. So it's just kind of put a bit of a corkscrew into their plan. Hmm, that's interesting. I'm trying to... I mean, I agree with everything you said because, like, in each of these, you know, uh, movies or series that we are seeing, other than, I will say, season one of Loki, which uh, is worth a watch for sure, especially if you're a fan of the Loki character. But in each of these movies, like, they're incredibly, everything to do with the multiverse is incredibly self-contained and solved by the end of it. Like, Spider-Man, it's started going crazy. It's solved at the end of that film. Obviously, there's... Other ramifications, especially for the character of Spider-Man, based on its outcome. But even in Doctor Strange 2, solved, right? Like, it doesn't feel like they can build anything. All they're doing is, like, they're they're showing us the multiverse. And like you say, they're, like, showing us... I. It seems like we're seeing different aspects of it. Because you were completely right. It seems like it just works completely different depending on whatever director or writer is putting it into their script. And there's no cohesion like we had with, in the with, the with the vision of the first three phases. Yeah, with the first three phases, it had this kind of quality where you would introduce a character, and then that character would then be introduced to the other characters pre-existing in the Marvel Universe, either one at a time or like with a big crossover, say with the Civil War. And that didn't always succeed, but it did always feel like it was building towards Thanos. And with this, I mean, if if Kang is this big villain, I mean, because I haven't seen Loki season one, it it just feels like there's no, I don't know, that's meaningless to me, right? And part of that is it's hard now to see all these series. I think I was reading that the amount of hours that Marvel's produced in the last, like, two and a half, three years is as much as they produced in the last 10, if not more. So, I mean, that alone should tell you that sometimes the quality is going to suffer. And and fair, I, I get where they're going. Like, the production value is clearly going down in a lot of these series compared to the films. Well, it's, even the films are. Yeah, true. I mean, I think the, the special effects budget and, like, the production value is, um, it's inconsistent. It would be the best way I would describe it. I certainly haven't been blown away by a Marvel film. Even even seeing Spider-Man, uh, which I think is one of the better ones in the past uh, couple years, there's some CGI in that that is pretty lackluster. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think uh, Doctor Strange has some problems for sure. Um, kind of reminds me of the issue with Black Panther, where it felt like the last half of the movie, they kind of rushed. They rushed to finish all the special effects. And, you know, maybe we're so spoiled with cinema now the, uh, that it's like if unless something blows us away i haven't seen top gun 2 yet but everyone who sees it in theaters you know can't stop just exalting just its you know, virtues it. yeah like they just it, it's all they want to talk about 
And I don't ever think that's the case with a Marvel film these days. When's the last one you saw where you were like, you have to see this movie? Endgame. Easy for me to yeah, say. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Only Endgame if you've seen the other movies. Right, okay. So this is the thing that I've actually have been thinking about this week in the last few days. Because, yeah, because I saw, you know, all this stuff was released at D23, like a couple of days away from uh, as far as when we're recording this anyways. So I'm, I'm think- I was thinking, though, like you said, in first three phases, to really get the payoff, you need to see the vast majority of what was part of the MCU. Are they, and will they eventually get to the point where they have so much things that, so much content that they can produce and are clearly starting to roll out that you don't need to partake in all of it. You can pick and choose and still get maybe not the 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 entire payload of the end payoff but still appreciate the end of this now we're at this multiverse arc they spent 10 years building and expanding the universe and it's and when i say that i mean as like strictly i'm going to boil it down to strictly number of heroes and even where they got to at the end of phase three uh, when we hit end game there weren't that many like to me, uh, like Captain America: Civil War felt as small and boiled down as Doctor Strange Two did with its multiversal stuff. We saw that we we got a sliver of it. Like they didn't show us enough. We didn't see enough of all of it. And like Civil War, like the Civil War comic book arc is massive because that universe is already so established. And by the time they literally have hundreds and thousands of heroes on either side of this stuff uh the civil war right of the superhuman registration that they couldn't possibly emulate it at the time they did in the film just because we don't have the number of bodies but will we get to a point where we're just gonna have so many heroes that are operating they're not all gonna they can't all possibly have something to do with each other because they don't in the comics right like this is literally a world that these people are and have these superhuman people are inhabiting maybe we'll get to a point in in the mcu where it just doesn't matter what you have or haven't seen. Maybe you'll appreciate seeing a specific character in some type of ensemble Avengers film, but it's not going to entirely impact the you being able to follow the ramifications of an Avengers film or the story of a, an Avengers film. I, I think the key here would be to just do what they're doing now, but maybe tie together smaller groups of heroes. So similar to like the comics, you'd have, you can look at the TV series now, like a run of comics essentially, right? So you might have a Daredevil TV series. You might have a a Hawkeye TV series, right? Or comic book, whatever you want to look at it. And then they come together kind of like the defenders or kind of like a smaller group, like similar to what Netflix was building to initially, although with mixed success, rather than having a universal like galactic war because that although it looks like they're building to that with secret wars i mean that's you're right how you can't really bring daredevil to space right you can't you can't really can you mix blade with miss marvel like i i just i wonder what you know what they're really doing here and if that is the plan maybe they do want to separate some stuff especially as they bring in mutants you know like that alone you could have an X-Men 
series of movies and then standalones for certain characters and that's going to give them options very similar to what we had with avengers right you're going to have avengers movies and then you're going to have uh thor ragnarok so you're going to be able to see thor and hulk or you know so you might be able to see logan and whoever I mean, I think that could be like their long-term plan, but it just doesn't feel like based on the next three years, that's really what they're doing. No, I, I, I agree. I think that uh, a lot of what they're doing is seems antithetical to what they potentially could be their overall end game for the MCU. Because like, yeah, like you say, like they're still trying to make everything tie in together to culminate to this huge blowout double feature Avenger thing. Just like so, they because they saw it worked in the first three phases. Let's do it again with some new characters. But then they're also seemingly in some type of transition, so they can future proof the money. <laughs> like they have to, they can't yeah. just do this every three phases because it's not. It's just it's it's not. Too, it's going to be too much. It's going to be way too much because we're already seeing again. People just have people have been superhero fatigue for years already, right? Like people just don't care enough anymore. Because it's not new and now anymore, and again, if you're unless you're drawn to a specific character, I really have to say, like I'm pumped for Sam Wilson's Captain America because I like Sam Wilson. I think he's a really cool character. I soup. I certainly enjoyed Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It is definitely by far, I would say, at the bottom, or if not the bottom of these TV series that have come out as far as quality, or I don't know if quality is the right word. Maybe enjoyability. For most people, but I really enjoyed Fatless, maybe more than other people, just because I mean I I'm quite particular to the character of Captain America, and I think, I mean that was all about paying homage and carrying the torch of Captain America, so it drew me in and it kept me engaged just because of the way I feel about that specific character. So obviously that's going to depend on you know every individual, but I don't know. It just seems a lot of what they're doing is like all over the place and I, I I'm I don't doubt that there is a larger vision that they have because they've proved and shown that they can have something and put it together and make it make sense by the end of it but yeah it's uh I mean I'm gonna obviously watch everything that comes out because Emma and I Emma and I always do so <laughs> like <laughs> and some of it's well some of it's still so good yeah, like there's still some stuff that's coming out from Marvel that's really awesome. And then there's stuff that you you see and you just kind of, you know, it's a one off. You're not going to watch it again. Probably the standout for me in the last couple of years is Shang-Chi. You yeah, know, that was that was really great. good. I really like it's a that good movie. standalone movie. Yes. It does. It, tell, it tells a different kind of story. It has different character dynamics than you're used to. And I think it in terms of uh, action and it, it just. Kind of nails everything. Oh, I agree. And it it's one of those ones I wasn't overly excited for because I'm not overly familiar with the character, so I didn't go into it with this these unrealistic expectations, which I think plays a huge part. But then there's something like the new Thor, where I left pretty much... My, my reaction would be meh. You know? It was disappointing. But again, my expectations are unrealistic, I'm sure. <laughs> I You know, I'm, I'm pondering is the most casual Marvel fan of the three of us. And I really agree with what Leland said about superhero fatigue. In fact, I want to answer Leland's earlier question he posed where he said, with all these new series, would it 
be good to have the movie standalone. I would almost say that that's necessary at this point. I think there are a lot of people that have seen a lot of the Marvel films that are like me that do not have the time or the will to catch up with all the shows. So if I walk into one of those new Avengers movies or something that's coming out and I don't know any of the characters, understand any of the plot themes, um, I'm not going to enjoy it. And that's going to make me less likely to engage in, say, phase six or whatever phases they do after. I mean, it, it sucks that my general sense is we're getting more quality instead of quantity, because one of the best things I could say about Marvel in phase one and two is with certain exceptions that were honestly mediocre at worst. <coughs> Thor one, you know, most of the movies were actually quite good and easy to follow. And you liked all the characters. The casting in general was really good. And that made me really dialed into phase one, two and three. A mistake they made for me, okay, maybe mistake is too harsh. When they moved to phase four, they quickly moved into more obscure properties that a casual fan like me would not have heard of. Like, I I obviously know who Thor is. I know who Iron Man is. I know who Captain America is. I mean, I would have to be living under a rock as a kid to not know. But when they started to move into, what was that TV show? I'm going to get the name wrong untouchables undesirables something inhumans inhumans that's it you know someone like me knows nothing about that and has never heard of that and you have to give me a really good reason to dial into that even i would go so far you you could probably say well you have been living under a rock even though this movie stars the rock but i don't know anything about black adam and i read some article yesterday that says he's like a hair below the power of superman I'm like, how have I never heard of this character? Now, I know he's not Marvel, but it feeds into superhero fatigue and not knowing what these lesser known properties are. So how is that different, though, from any other film or, or property? You know, you, you see, and it could, it could literally be anything. It just You see the trailer for a, a new movie, and it is something that, uh, whether it is, comes from an, an existing intellectual property or not, that you are unfamiliar with. If the trailer draws you in, maybe you'll go see that movie. So this, these superhero movies are no longer becoming superhero. They're just movies now, right? They're, be, they're becoming commonplace and then they're just becoming movies where you just need to see a really good trailer for it to draw you in. I agree with you, though. It would be a very good idea to have the films stand alone as much as possible because the Disney, I mean, Disney Plus itself and that content... Yeah, all of this content is technically behind a paywall, but it just seems like that is one step further removed from going to the movies, right? Like, for example, The Marvels, this movie that will have Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel, and uh, I don't know what the character's actual name is, but Rambo's daughter, who was in WandaVision. So again, a tie to WandaVision. We saw her get her powers in WandaVision, and that character introduced in WandaVision. They cannot introduce the number of characters that they want to have operating in movies. That's why they have to do it in the TV series, right? That's also a big boon to having the TV series. But I am willing to bet that the beginning of the Marvels is going to pick up right from the very end mid credit scene of Miss Marvel's TV series. Because it was, it's like set directly setting up a series of events. 
I would not be surprised if it literally picked up the scene after that end credit. Like, I would not be surprised. So they're not, they're not different. Like, they're not different, right? This is the thing. I think it's also, there's like this bridge between television and movies too that is happening that it doesn't matter what media form it is. It's still all supposed to be cohesive and flowing together. Which is what they're trying. I mean, that's what they're trying to do, anyways, right? They don't give a shit if you're sitting at home or if you're sitting in the theater. As far as telling the stories, anyways. Obviously, bottom lines is a, a you know, and production budgets is an entirely different conversation. All right, Mo. <laughs> okay, Moby, what's your banter? You know, my banter is uh, pretty interesting. I did like a last minute swap because I made a last minute purchase uh, in the hour before we started recording. So I went to Etsy because Etsy all, always has interesting, fun things to browse online. And um, I've been interested in this new growing subculture of amateurs programming retro video games and actually getting the games printed on real cartridges that you can play in like N64, Sega Genesis, um, Super Nintendo, Nintendo, uh, systems like that, even all the way back through Atari. And I came across a game called Smash Brothers Remix, and it had Sonic and Conquer, who would be brand new, along with Star Wolf. How can I not buy a game with Star Wolf? Not Star Fox. Fuck Star Fox. He's he's a chimp. But, you know, we've got Star Wolf. And I was like, okay. I was looking at this. It was like, last one left. Four people currently have this in their cart. And I really kind of want to see what this subculture is all about and the quality of these kind of amateur games made for retro systems. And then I saw on the cartridge, like, label, this pair of teeth. And I'm like, no, no, I recognize this. This cannot be a character in the game. And sure enough, I look up the list of characters and someone programmed the fucking mad piano from Mario 64 that bounces around and chomps on the Big Boo scene and if you or Big Boo level. And if you ever played that game, you'll remember this huge piano that just hops around. It's a playable character in the game. And I have no idea how how you can make a, a piano as a character in a in a Smash Brothers game, but Holy shit, do I want to see. So I bought it right then and there. It was like 103 bucks, including shipping. <laughs> it could be the worst purchase I've made in forever. But the idea of playing Smash Brothers with you guys, with, with someone hopping around is this homicidal piano. Was, I, I just can't pass that up. I'm sorry. Do you not like money? <laughs> Why are you saying this? Because I also bought a $500 arcade cabinet. That might be part of my argument, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Money is to be spent. And Moby just spends. But I'm never like in deep debt. You know, by the way, listener, don't invest in Peloton. $79 Seventy nine dollars a share down to nine. So that was very smart. What what happened to all reserve? I will reserve stupidity in stock investing, apparently. <laughs> that or we had like the greatest stock market crash since 1929. But um, yeah, we'll see how this game goes. And uh, another thing that's interesting is um, some of my uh, sealed uh, Wii games are starting to to spike in price, which is nice. 
including uh, Xenoblade Chronicles X, which I drunkenly purchased three copies of on three different nights. So, yeah, my, my banter was I may have more information in the future, but I am just tiptoeing into the retro amateur but for sale video game world. That sounds pretty interesting. It's cool that our next segment's actually an intervention for you. So hopefully <laughs> yeah. that'll help. <laughs> kind of is. But uh, Leland, yeah. No, I, I'll just skip my banner because we're already long. So let's move right into the first segment. All right. Well, the first segment's mine. So welcome to hell, everybody. This is going to be the video game variety show, Big Brother. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about was how gaming studios are buying everything. It seems like that's picked up speed since I was last on the pod. Uh, and I think the big ones were Bethesda and Bungie. Uh, but there's been a couple little ones in there too. And then I noticed that Moby left a little sarcastic note to me in the uh, the uh, pod notes here about something with Nintendo buying some mm-hmm. sort of game. Who cares? Uh, oh, Zeno something? Yeah, Zeno something. I remember when Zeno something was sitting on a shelf and you wanted to buy it. At a high price. So don't act like you don't know what Xeno something is. Well, I, I don't I don't play games that don't run on SSDs anymore. So Thank you. Thank you. I forgot about everything from before twenty sixteen and Nintendo no longer exists to me. So <laughs> we can we, we can talk about Bethesda, everyone's favorite company. <laughs> we can talk about uh, how they're going to be uh, exclusive for Xbox in the future, which I think is actually a pretty big get for Xbox. And it, seem, it seems like Xbox is really pushing the, the console exclusivity. I mean, Sony's had their first-party studios, and there's some, some big ones out there. We get the God of Wars and the Naughty Dogs and all that stuff. But, uh, I mean, Bethesda and yeah, ZeniMax as a whole... Pr- releases a lot of games so that's that's a lot of stuff that you won't be able to get on playstation you'll only be able to play it on pc or xbox i mean i don't know i'm probably not going to go out of my way to get a xbox anytime soon because i i think i'm hitting that point in my life where i don't have enough time to play all the things i could afford to buy which maybe that's just being an adult and that's sad but i could still buy them and stare at them much as moby does but maybe, yeah, Leland, you haven't really been gaming as much lately, unless it's Valheim, but I don't know. What do you think about this? I think that, I mean, I agree that they're, they're, they're really trying to make exclusives matter. And I almost add again to that statement, because I don't know if they ever actually matter. This is something that, I, I mean, I think we've talked about this a number of times on the show. I don't know if the, like, what difference an exclusive lineup of games makes in console sales. I don't know. Are we at the point where console sales is the driving force for these companies still? Because with Xbox's Game Pass, that library can only expand with all of these exclusives that they're scooping up. Yeah. Does it matter to them if people are actually buying their console as much? Like, Because again, like the benefit is they're hitting the PC gamer crowd. Like you don't even have to, you have to, you, you can never have owned a single a, a console in your life and have been a strictly PC gamer and take advantage of so many additional titles now. 
Well, even Sony now is starting to release a lot of their first-party titles on PC, on Steam. And it's interesting because I almost wonder if the majority of you know expo so well microsoft as a whole their business model is just going to be situated around subscriptions because apparently they make the majority of their money based on purchases from people who have subscriptions which is very odd but because they sell things at a discounted price to subscribers people then go hey i want to own this digital media and they'll buy it so they're selling a lot that way apparently and and they must make some sort of money there because their subscriptions tend to be really cheap especially microsoft i mean the amount of free months that i seem to every time i go on there and i renew my subscription i get a dollar subscription and it's i've probably spent you know over like the maybe year worth of subscription i've had to them at any point in the last couple years total maybe like fifty dollars yeah. For their ultimate subscription, very little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I've, I've played a significant amount of games on there. At least tried them. Games that would cost, you know, seventy nine ninety nine at at for a purchase price. You know, whereas Sony's gone a little bit different there. Their their price for their premium online is still pretty expensive, with uh, not as much bang for your buck, I'd say. Uh, but it, yeah, it's it's interesting. I wonder if that is just them ramping up it as a whole because it did seem like that died down there was there was a big period like ps2 era a little bit of ps3 where it felt very much like there's still exclusives in the world and now that's seemingly coming back and i agree i don't know how much it really matters but the the bungie one or sorry the bethesda one was a big a big one for me and that was kind of the the one that i'm still not sure how i feel about yeah, no, I agree that, that that is huge. I mean, just when Elders, just to think that you cannot, you won't be able to play Elder Scrolls Six on your PlayStation, it's like blowing right. my mind. Like, like I can't believe that. Uh, you know, it's funny that like even uh, even like the uh, the timed exclusive shit, which has been a thing for a, a long time, but like you know, with like uh, with Borderlands, I think it was Borderlands Three did it first, like. A year exclusive on Epic Games yeah. launcher, the first year of Borderlands, you know, Borderland Three. Uh, like, even that is like, oh, I hate it because like, if you, like, who the fuck actually buys games from Epic, other than just get their free games that they give away every week? They're giving away some game for free. Those are the old. I have a very extensive Epic Epic Games launch uh, launcher library, but they're all just from the games they give away for free because you just. Add it to your library, and then you have it. It's not even, like, it's just, it's... I can't believe people are actually buying games in Epic. (laughs) I don't know. To me, it's really frustrating, because then you have to open it in, you know, you have two different, basically, you know, accumulations of games on your PC, and when I already have, like, 100 Steam titles or whatever, I don't want to have five of them floating around on Epic Game Store. I just want to get them on Steam. I don't care. I'd I'd pay ten extra dollars just to have them on Steam. Yeah, yeah. And unless they're free, of course. So I I find that timed exclusive thing really frustrating. And I think it actually affects game sales moving forward on Steam. I think people get pissed off, uh, or at least they leave angry comments. Maybe that doesn't actually <laughs> yeah, re- yeah. reflect sales. <laughs> yeah, I I just have a comment that's really an observation, which is. Years ago, probably since the PS2, Xbox, GameCube era, it was Nintendo 
was the one main console company that was focusing on exclusives, everything, their first party games, signing Resident Evil, you know, Capcom to an exclusivity deal. Whereas at the time, Xbox and Sony were like, no, we're all about third party and who cares where else the games are sold. And now that's completely flipped. Like on my Switch, I mean, Switch is like a black market bazaar. You can buy anything. I mean, there's, I have literally booted up the Switch store just to have a laugh. That's the only reason I go on because of the garbage wear that is released on that. But what's also released is a ton of third party stuff. And now suddenly it's like Microsoft is the company of exclusives. Microsoft is the company of full like backwards compatibility. It's kind of like, what? There's this been this big flip that has come on. And I actually don't know Microsoft's strategy. I don't know if they're just trying to put like a final nail in Sony's coffin somehow. Because like what you guys are saying with how if you know if you cancel your Microsoft Live account, go back on, it's like a dollar, whatever. How are they making money? How? Yeah. I mean, I'll push back on you on the the Nintendo Sony thing from the PS2 era because I think Sony had actually a ton of exclusives during the early PS2 era. Um, they had all their, their platformer exclusives, like everything Sly Cooper, Jack and Daxter, Ratchet and Clank. They had uh, Metal Gear Solid. They had Final Fantasy. I think they initially had Grand Theft Auto to themselves. And then Xbox had uh, Halo, Knights of the Old Republic, all their spinning wheel racy games they had, whatever the fuck. I think Sony had quite a bit. You're right. Nintendo bought uh, the rights to a few different series there at the time, which was un-Nintendo-like in a way, because up until that point, we kind of thought of Nintendo as like the kiddie, you know, console, whereas now they were they were the place to play Resident Evil. You know, like you couldn't get Resident Evil 4 anywhere else when it came out in 2004. You know, we were very jealous at the time. This That sucked. But I wasn't going to buy a baby console for one game. It just wasn't gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did. I did eventually. Yes, he did. I just don't quite get how exclusive games can be lucrative. I suppose. I guess if it's if it's you know a a first party studio, then that's that's different. But how would you know get brokering an exclusive? deal for a specific game with a like a third party studio how could that possibly be more lucrative for that studio than to offer their game on every platform like how exactly does that work right like oh yeah you you lose money that's just inevitable uh, i mean how how could you not you lose access you know you're basically saying hey instead of carrying my product in a hundred stores we'll just sell it at the 7-eleven you know, but hey, there's the Walmart down the street. No, we're not going to sell it at the Walmart. The 7-Eleven paid us $5,000 just to stock this, right. right? So you get that initial payment, you know, and I'm sure that some of these companies, you know, make bank from doing it. But at the same time, yeah, they're they're losing money. The other thing to consider, too, is that, and this is actually probably a, a pro for uh, exclusivity, but I think when games are made specifically for one console, they're much more optimized and they run much better. And overall, there's less bullshit around their releases, especially around the PS3 era when, you know, ga- the PS3 was a complicated piece of technology. So when 
games were very well done and really took you know took uh, advantage of the cell processors that was that were available at the time it they they were awesome like if you remember Metal Gear Solid 4 at the time like that probably stands up graphically now and that's 15 years old it, it's kind of crazy when you think about that that aspect of it but then you have something like what was that uh cyberpunk you know 2077 yeah. right you're releasing it over like you know they're coming out in teslas and phones and you know ps4 ps5 you could buy it on the super nintendo it's not really optimized to the best of their abilities they have probably 500 people working on the different very variations of these games right um so yeah they make money but at what cost well i mean and we saw how catastrophic that can be with cyberpunk 2077 and the playstation version of it that was literally pulled from the ps store the ps4 yeah Yeah, like yeah i mean yikes (laughs) yeah I think this is kind of a good segue into one of the points that we have in the uh, episode uh, skeleton there, um, which is how do we think this is going to affect AA and AAA games? I mean, I could tell you a beneficial effect because I'm Mr. Nintendo fanboy because Zelda Breath of the Wild gets so much love for its world. You know, it's living, breathing world. Every corner you go, there's something to do. Climb everywhere. Nintendo didn't do that. They came up with the concept for that, but that's part of the reason why I put in the show notes or the episode notes about Monolith Soft. Monolith Soft, who made uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, that series, they are very familiar with open world. Nintendo was not. And Nintendo outsourced within their own corporate umbrella for Monolith Monolith Soft to make this gigantic world so a lot of the credit that nintendo is getting for breath of the wild should actually be directed to monolith soft and what i'm saying is that's a benefit nintendo would not have been able to create such a living breathing celebrated world had they not had monolith soft sure there's definitely a thing there with um games now where they're being sort of like farmed out in a way they do this a lot with remasters so you have something like blue point studios for sony and they their first game essentially was re-releasing like their most recent one i I, they might have had one before but they redid the original demon souls so they're still an exclusive uh team working for sony but they're not actually making their own games they're just doing remasters it it feels somewhat similar to that with monolith soft like they're just they farm that out so it's almost like the ip is um you know individual to the system but the company's working on it it they just happened to by happenstance because of that they're console exclusive studios sometimes i I think in this case bluepoint studios is owned by sony but um, i wonder how often that is where they just farm out an ip to another studio yeah, it seems like every line, every defining line in the industry is just starting to get more and more blurred. Like the diff, I mean, the difference between you know the the console and the studio, right? Like the, the Microsoft and the studios and Sony and the studios. Like they're they're yeah, they're they're like I guess they're technically both like studios, right? There are sects that are are considered of Sony and Microsoft to be studios in a, addition to the myriad of the other you know profitable. Uh, expenditure investments that they have or what you know whatever they they do to to keep their company afloat but like 
to me also the line between like a double A and a triple A also in a, in a number of cases can be very very hard to pinpoint like is this like this game you know this game looks great it runs you know the story voice acting on point etc cetera, etc cetera. like at what point does the double become the triple and you know like uh, that seems to me like that is some some like opaque or, or uh, something that you know it when you see it, but you can't actually put it into words what it means, you know? I, I almost think at this point that the concept of a AAA versus AA game is, you're right, it, they're practically inseparable unless you get into something like a Red Dead Redemption 2 or, you know, one of these games that they clearly put $500 million into, you know, it's basically a blockbuster. Uh, it's, it's the, it's the equivalent of the new Jurassic park coming out or something, right? It's like that, but games and you know, they, they expect it to make a shitload of money. It makes a shitload of money. They put a shitload of money into it. It takes seven years to make. They know that the time investment's going to pay dividends. They usually make it a, a pay, a pay platform of some, you know, some level of that will exist, right? Like, you know, Red Dead Redemption became Red Dead Redemption online, right? Um, so they're going to make money forever off of it until they come up with a new one. Right. Same with GTA. Of course, right? And, you know, they, they've tried to do these with a few different types of games and it's with varied success. And, uh, and when it fails, it fails spectacularly. Um, you know, there's been a few that have just been total bombs for the both consoles, I believe. Uh, but it, it's interesting because, yeah, some of these what we would maybe before call double A games. Yeah. They have full voice acting, which was kind of the hallmark of like a triple A title, right? They have uh motion capture They're you know, anywhere from, you know, a, a focused 15 hour story to a, you know, a 50 hour game, right? Like I just played last year, the new guardians of the galaxy game. And it's, I, I, I'm playing it and I don't think it's a triple A game because it doesn't feel like they spent, that kind of money on it but at the same time it's amazing and it looks like a triple a game would and it plays almost perfectly you know it has maybe a little a few little quirks where i might be like hey this isn't quite to the standard that we expect out of a game like that but it's hard to separate i i just i don't know there, there doesn't seem to be a line i mean we've had this discussion before but it, it's it's becoming ever more blurry and I, I totally agree you know unless unless it's the new stardew valley and we're like hey that's clearly an indie title made by one guy and now he just has a lot more money <laughs> you know <laughs> it's really it's really hard to be like yeah this is an indie game or this is a double a game the the benefit is frankly the subscription services i think a lot of these games get uh eyes on them the negative is that they probably don't make the blow out money that they would you know if they were a sudden indie darling like say something you know maybe even crazy like uh minecraft right well something like that probably won't make that kind of money unless it's subscription based now because you're gonna get it for free in a service and then in when i say subscription based i mean like uh you know continued like you're paying like uh loot boxes whatever right they're, like there's some sort of continued ser service aspect to it uh but otherwise you know even something like stardew valley how would he make the money he made if it's free on every console yeah 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 well i mean, also it seems like that that like title that triple a title or that moniker 
also dictates the MSRP, right? Like if you paid, right? If you pay, if you look at Stardew Valley and you look at it, and you're like, I'm not, I'm not paying eighty dollar MSRP for this game. But there is more than eighty dollars worth of gameplay and enjoyment in sure. a title like that. And obviously, Stardew Valley is a very unique and special thing, right? Uh, just from you know how it was created from by the one dude, et cetera, et cetera. And it may be an outlier and an anomaly, and not really a great example of that. But think of uh, I'm just thinking of uh, Hunt Showdown, right? That game looks great. It is a strictly online game. Uh, it's not definitely not like a AAA title. I think it certainly falls into the to the the AA. But it now and for a while, uh, I mean, Crytek struggles to keep that game funded. And now they're doing all trying to implement all sorts of new different ways for them to for that game to continue to generate money like this type of like live play service. I mean, now they're they're, the next event coming up in September or sorry, in a couple months, whatever soon is is going to be their first attempt at an actual battle pass model. So, (laughs) oh, we'll see. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of people are like, well, you know. From all the details that have been out, this ain't the most egregious battle pass I've ever seen. I don't like it, but I like the game, and I want the game to keep making money so I can keep playing it kind of thing, right? And then it ranged to people just screaming at Crytek and those type of people on the internet that it doesn't matter what the studio would could do or possibly do, what decision they would make, like these people would be complaining. So obviously, <laughs> that's the internet. So I'm interested to see how the battle pass shapes up. I don't much care about the battle pass um again though and like in that that game has done a very good job specifically this game obviously has done a very good job of having all the additional dlc be strictly cosmetic and there have certainly been a couple problematic character skins that people have complained about and crytek has tried to address and yada yada there's definitely missteps along the way from crytek studios but it's all supposed to be cosmetic it doesn't influence gameplay it's not pay to win so what does it matter, right? It, it seems like every, like, Reddit page you see on it and, like, argument of people saying, look, if you don't like the Battle Pass, don't buy into the Battle Pass. And then it always just kind of inevitably turns into a slippery slope argument saying, well, they're starting here. I don't want to see them end up here where who where X, Y, and Z ended up kind of thing. And I don't, I don't really understand. I don't know if that's a valid argument. I guess people should be free and should voice their concerns to the studio. Like, I mean, cause the studio, like they need to listen. If they're trying to have a, an entity that is literally living to generate revenue, like the create that studio needs to listen to their fan base and their player base when they bitch and don't like something, obviously, cause they need to find something that can one please that fan base and make it so they're profitable so they can continue to work on the product. I mean, I th- I think as a whole, people are just inherently more negative about what they're consuming right now, maybe more than ever before. So then you're getting those kind of reactions. And also they've been tainted from previous bad experiences. So I get it. Uh, Hunt itself, though, really. And I like Hunt. Uh, but part of the issue with that is they don't release enough content in general. Um, I-, I think that they what well, they update like one map in the last two years kind of thing like it's been yeah. it, it, i mean when you can when you think about how detailed their maps are you can give them a bit of a pass but at the same time three maps i mean there's a night day cycle but there's not much variation there and there's no there's not a 
you know, there's one mode really, you know, like, so you're asking people to invest long-term in this, but they're right. How, what else can you do more other than sell more copies? And maybe everyone who wants to play this game at that, at this point has done it. And so they have to do something to, you know, maybe make more maps. Maybe they have to make a, a season or something service. I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that they're at the point where, yes, they are forced to be able to try to implement these kind of things that they may not have wanted to, you know, that probably wasn't part of the original vision for this game in the first place, right? Right. Uh, and and there's still, <laughs> the biggest complaint about Hunt in general is that all of the staffing seems to be for DLC creation. <laughs> you know, like it's all just artists right. making DLC. So the, rather than developing, fixing bugs and developing new maps and developing yeah. new bosses, that's like the largest and by far the 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 most spouted criticism that I see for sure uh, within the community. And all of which, I mean, I agree. A new map would be great. A new boss boss would be awesome. But I mean, they implement new yeah. weapons and yeah, they come with new skins and stuff and they give you a lot of it for free. You know, you get base models that you unlock through. The, the system itself has a leveling system that's almost like Battle Pass-ish already, right? Unless you prestige yeah. and you can choose not to prestige and have all these unlocks and yada, yada, yada. So, I don't know. Something, something, yeah. A new map would be dope. Some new features would be cool. But, yeah, I, I, I yeah, I agree. I don't know. Hunt's a, Hunt's a weird outlier. But also, Hunt is only $30. You're not paying $80 MSRP for Hunt. And... Again, in personally, had I paid, I mean, I had I paid anything because actually, Ghost Marty, you gifted it to me. <laughs> but had I paid eighty dollars MSRP, I have four hundred hours in that game, Steam hours logged in that game. I would have got my money's worth from it. Oh, by far, yeah, right. Like, I mean, how many AAA titles out there are fifteen hours long? You know. Uh, and that used to be the kind of the standard and you wouldn't really complain but now because there's so many the, so many games like Breath of the Wild exist now that your expectation of a game that's $80 or now $90 for our Canadian listeners out there uh you know you expect that it's going to cost sorry Canadian listener I I forgot I was where just I about was. to think don't give us too much credit buddy yeah sorry My five bad. more years we'll have a second listener it's coming. Hey, what, after this one, one listener in every country is still like 197 listeners. <laughs> uh, I'm bringing all my cameo fans right here, so get can, ready. Can you bring your Patreon the, 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 here the, as well? The, the, the internet's about to crash. Yeah, you know, we we kind of got uh kind of off the rails here. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but you know, I I think coming back to the idea of like a triple A and a double A, yeah, sometimes the the pricing is certainly you know, the thing you're looking at, right? It's like, did they price it like a triple A game or did they price it like a double A title or an indie title, right? You think the indie titles are about anywhere from 19 to $29. The double A are anywhere from, you know, 30 to 50. And then the triple A are, you know, you have to mortgage your house to buy one now. And, and you very well might have to very soon. Uh, especially if you're listening to this in the future, I'm sorry. <laughs> in the year 2000. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I, afford, I could afford gas. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's interesting. The Bethesda one is the big one for me, and the, their next big release is Starfield, right? Yeah. And that's basically their new IP. It's going to be their new Elder Scrolls or new Fallout, whatever. I I'm not overly 
excited about it, but I would have been more excited about it if I could have played it on PS5. Yeah, so so you would still so you still choose like you would still choose PS5 over your PC for main mainline gaming. Yeah. Uh, I do now, uh unless it's something that I I would want to play WASD, but uh frankly, I mean, it's easier. The the DualShock 5 is really nice. I I can play it on my TV with a little less hassle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little more expensive for games. Uh, if my wife wants to watch Riverdale, I'm kind of hooped. But, you know, <laughs> gener- generally speaking, yeah, I would pick it on PS5. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that... Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much this could actually attribute to it, but just because, like, this has got to be... All these deals are, are must take for like months to pan out right to, to start to get into the works to work out and finally finalize but there's still a console shortage going on yeah it's crazy it's it's what two years i can i cannot believe how difficult it still is to get a ps5 uh and i mean ps5 is really the only thing that i care about getting so i don't know how much of those tribulations that microsoft or the xbox is going through i assume you know, very similar. Obviously, it's just a world shortage of, of shit, right? So they're geared to just not really have to worry about that too. Like, you know, you know, they're this model is just so outside of hardware as well. In a in a way, it is. I, I mean, a, lo- a lot of things are still releasing on on the previous generation. Yeah. And if you're if you're Microsoft, you go, hey, our model covers PC and Xbox. So who cares if you can't get our console? I mean, you can usually get a new Xbox right now, not compared to the PS5. But apparently, uh, Xbox is selling like hotcakes again. You know, oh, wow. they're they're doing better. So now is that because graphic cards are also still hard to get? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Because um, that is that is tough right now. You, I mean, if you want to get the top top of the line Nvidia, like good luck. You're gonna you're gonna pay for it. Yeah, well, I mean, people are even struggling to get like thirty seventies for fucking ever, right? And really? isn't the thirty ninety yeah. out now or something? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I haven't really followed it because I know I'm still a couple years out from replacing that whole thing. But uh, oh, when I do, then I'll go back to PC. <laughs> right? Yeah. Once your once the PC outmatches the, the PS five hardware. <laughs> yeah, and then 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 I'll get the PS five Pro, and then we'll re- repeat the process <laughs> until I die. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I don't know. I don't have too much else to say on the topic, except I do think there's positives and negatives. If I were to comment more, it would be outside of the console companies um, swallowing up uh, uh, different companies. But I, I just think that competition is better in the marketplace overall, and that doesn't necessarily uh, just have to do with video games. But th- these companies that, like, you know, buy Blizzard or Bethesda. I mean, they really hold a hammer over gamers' heads, whatever they can do. And I think my worry about this is that maybe in the early 2000s, having these exclusives were system sellers where the market was more fluid. You would have guys like us that were in our early 20s and we only had money for one system. And it's like, which one has the games we want to play the most? And I think at that time... Yeah, certain franchises would be system sellers, but I don't think that's the case anymore because I think not just the games for the system, but the kind of gaming experience on the system 
between Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo is now so wildly different. You're not picking a set of games, you're picking an experience. Whether you want a console focused on online multiplayer, on first-party games and indie games, i.e. Switch, or really the most traditional video game console line left, which is PlayStation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we pretty much hit every point there. Uh, we, you know, we're doing pretty good for time here, boys. I'm kind of s- surprised with us here. Yeah, we started to ship this shape up a bit. <laughs> yeah. After so, that you know, long banter. <laughs> you know, two, two segments left, and we're, we're not at the five-hour mark yet, Woo! so this is something. I can still see daylight. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think that's a pretty solid ending point there. You know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the next couple of years. I, I think because because in the last little bit we haven't we haven't really seen those effects yet. The, these these companies have been bought, but their future games aren't haven't released yet. So we'll see that in 2023, especially starting with Bethesda and their uh, the sister companies. That's but a good otherwise. Point. Yeah, um, maybe we'll move on to the next segment. Crazy about cardboard. Moby says it'll cardboard alchemy turning golden ideas into reconstituted paper. So I just kind of had the idea, uh, which you know we didn't preemptively say. We each had, we each decided what we wanted for each of these segments. We picked our own segment, basically, the talking point. I kind of just wanted to talk about. Uh, which is kind of in vain with, uh, in line with what we're, we've been discussing a little bit, but turning into intellectual properties into board games. I mean, it happens a lot in, in other medias, especially movies we've seen, right? Like countless video game IPs are, are turned and they try to make a decent movie out of them. That is, seems to be happening more and more with board games as well, with tabletop games. And that has been happening. I mean, you kind of, I think we talked about forever ago, there's literally an edition of Monopoly for every IP, right? I mean, obviously that's not (laughs) what we're going to talk about, but it's not a new thing in the tabletop genre. But I think it is becoming more and more available to more uh, development studios uh, or developers, I suppose. I guess they're not really studios. Like I I was just thinking one of the media that I played that I mean, it's not a huge IP, but uh, the Red Rising um, book series, Stonemaier Games put out a Red Rising board game, the and the the game is really good. I really enjoy it. Uh, it's basically like a, a a hand building and managing mechanic game, and it's 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 quite thematic for the novel. Uh, the novel is basically this. Um, dystopic future with there's different uh, casts of people denoted by color ranging from red all the way up to gold at the top of the cast system uh each of the different colors kind of has their own specialty like uh engineers like coppers and silvers kind of deal with money and and and, uh whites are like uh, bureaucrats and and reds basically at the bottom like are are miners and i mean really it's a slave system but the game itself is very thematic to this IP and it did a very good job of emulating it. And I know that Jamie Stegmeier is a big co-owner of Stonemaier games really enjoys his IP and made sure that it, it was done justice. And that doesn't always happen, I suppose. And I don't really know what the process of getting the rights to an IP is like. I mean, I have no idea how difficult that is, but 
it just seems like it is something that is becoming more and more lucrative and more readily readily available just based on the number of of titles that are coming out with an IP. Yeah, so I, I think of something like Game of Thrones, which has, there's a Game of Thrones everything now, you know? Uh, and they have Game of Thrones, uh, ga- like, uh, tabletop games out. I've never played one. Um, but I think there's, like, they're diplomacy-based and that kind of thing in a, in a few different ones, right? Uh, and you're right. I believe the way, it probably depends on the owner of the IP. Some people probably just sell it, you, you know, at wholesale to whatever like hey you're gonna have the rights to make the the blocks that are based off of this you're gonna have the rights to make the games you're gonna have this you're gonna have that and and if you have a management company i'm sure it just goes through them you know the the funny thing i've noticed lately is uh how how many different lego sets there are for these really obscure things that you wouldn't think there's should be lego sets for. yeah <laughs> like you, like you wouldn't think you need the office in lego <laughs> but you can buy a hundred spend about 120 bucks and get the office in lego you know <laughs> you can have jim hang out at pam's desk in lego you know you can have michael be ra- you can have michael be racist in lego <laughs> <laughs> Because kids, that's what people want. Kids just need the office Lego. I'm guessing that's oriented towards adults, but it's it's funny to me. And I, you know, you you see this with some games too. You know, I mean, things become video games. It used to be a big one, right? Like you'd always see like the movie tie-in games and shit like that. Uh, but yeah, the tabletop space is ever expanding, right? And and it just seems like you're always seeing a tabletop something and some i mean we've played some good ones uh moby's resident evil game comes to mind uh, he didn't buy the, he didn't buy the rights no, to that one no i'm afraid that was an illegal uh production yeah uh capcom's coming after him although i think his was still better than the new capcom series and movies so uh you know maybe they don't have a leg to stand on um yeah uh, i i don't know if we've really played too many movie game adaptions Mo- yeah movie i'm not sure i mean, the one that immediately comes to mind well, i mean i haven't played this and and again it's actually not really the ip but uh, a game called nemesis that is essentially alien you are on oh, the ship okay and the models look very very similar to xenomorphs like it is it is alien without putting the alien name on it uh interesting and apparently it's it's very fun and very cool game i mean i you're you're on the ship and then things go wrong and you got to fix it and I think everyone has kind of their own personal win condition and and again something I would really enjoy uh, would really like to play things that, one that kind of jumps immediately to me is this war of mine I'm gonna make it shine. It, it did a fantastic <laughs> job of emulating the video game and there is a Frostpunk board game uh, coming soon as well made by the uh, same studio what are they Eleven Cage Games or uh, Thing Games or something. Uh, I'm interested in that as well. Yeah, movies though, I I, uh, I don't know. There's definitely a Marvel everything. <laughs> like that oh, yeah. is like the easiest IP to get apparently because you can just make a Marvel whatever the hell you want. Now, uh, the thing that I wonder, and I guess like it, guess I suppose it depends on who has the IP. If the, the design space is kind of what I'm more interested in is for, for these. Like if you are making... Like what again? I, I'm going to bring up Red Rising because I, I, 
to me, when you, uh, when I, I don't, I don't know, I don't believe either of you have, have read uh, any of the installments in this novel series. Very interesting series. I would recommend it. But to me, when I think of a of a book, Red Rising, I have no clue where to start as far as design space to try to emulate the themes and the tone of this novel. Like, it, I don't know how this particular set of mechanisms came together to have, and then was able to be themed to suit the, this game. And I suppose a lot of it is, so the, the most of this game is like a, a deck of like 110 character cards, characters that named characters and just, you know, generic characters of the varying colors in this cast system, all of which interact with other colors of other casts in ways that, is portrayed in this novel series, right? Again, the this hierarchy and, and the, you know, uh, like the pinks are basically escorts, mo- usually for the golds, right? So like most of the pink characters are asso- associated with a specific gold character and do a, you know, a number of different actions. And just like the, the to me, in this instance, the design space seems limitless to adapt this specific novel. But I don't know... I just wonder that with this particular IP, if it could feel more claustrophobic, like you, you can only almost only go in a particular direction to be able to pay homage to the intellectual property. Yeah. I I'm only thinking right now on the two board games I can think of that I have are based off of intellectual properties, neither of which I played with you guys yet, but I really want to. I mean, at some point in the segment, we have to get into the potential pitfalls of these IPs. And I think what that is, is that the developer either doesn't study the IP enough or simply doesn't care and wants to put their own unique spin on it that causes uh, the IP to stray so far from the original game or movie or whatnot uh, that it has some, some major issues. And even though I haven't played these board games yet, I could tell you of two issues that I've seen so far. So the first game is Stardew Valley. Uh, Very difficult to get. I paid way too much money for it in 2021 to buy a game I still haven't played yet. Shocker. (laughs) And guess what? It is readily available right now. I know. They started reprinting the damn thing like a few months after I bought it. It's always crazy. I could have picked it up in Holland when I was there in May if I wanted. (sighs) For like 40 euros. Well, that's like 5,000 Canadians. Well, still. that's a good point. But still. Leland, Le- Le- Leland, we get it. You have a girlfriend. I am an international <laughs> international traveler now. I am very cultured. No, I'm sorry. I just get Marty's jab, I think, a little bit more than you did. But anyways, um, the problem with... the pro- I have watched Let's Play for Stardew Valley because, number one, the board game is complicated when I looked into it, which is different than the game. The game kind of, you know, just lets you explore. Okay, but the game lets you tiptoe into it and at least explore with no pressure. Okay, the board game, the board game is all about pressure. From what I've seen from multiple Let's Plays, it's frantic. Sure, it's a co-op game, but you need to basically do every turn correct or you're going to lose. Like, it's more like Outbreak or whatever that game was, the uh, Pandemic. It's more like Pandemic than any other game. And so my problem is, 
I mean, sure, we've got to play it to verify, but I feel like it loses the soul of Stardew Valley, which is relatively relaxing uh, of a game. And that was one of its selling points. That's what Leland was speaking to earlier. He's, you know, I think he had a good point in asking that is like, how do you like what do you pick about these IPs to then translate into a game? And how do you then take that and take what 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 about it makes it itself right like what makes resident evil resident evil because you see how people turn those into other you know into movies and tv series and and fans just shake their heads and the same with games right you're, you're saying hey you know stardew valley this doesn't feel like stardew valley and i think that's the worst thing you could say about a a product yes. that represents that right it, it doesn't feel like the thing i love and but what it's hard to put a a tangible like explanation on what that is I agree. and that's where that's where i think having the creator involved in any anything like that makes it easier you know if you think about game of thrones when george rr R. martin was helping write the series and talking to the creators it was better when he left it was worse i think as a whole that that's obviously ideal but as as things get bigger you know marvel you know there's going to be varying levels of success because marvel is basically well it is owned by disney now but it you know disney's the same way right like this is a multi-billion dollar conglomeration of many ideas it's not just one ip anymore so something like stardew valley that's something i think you have to get right in in some ways because there's less of an excuse yeah no i i definitely heard uh, the same thing about that game for sure and that it was just ultimately pretty lackluster as far as emulating Stardew Valley. Now I do think that a game like Stardew Valley on this sur- below the surface is a lot more maybe nuance isn't the the right word, but there's far more going on with that game and I think there are far more instances of feeling pressured in that game to get everything done and before you have to go to sleep and uh, so I'm wondering if that is like that's the aspect that they chose to try to right. put into this game. Because as a whole, I mean, a game like Stardew, I think Stardew is, can get quite complex in the later game, right? There's too much of that to be able to put that in a, on a table in a tabletop game without playing that game for six hours. You know what I mean? So I wonder if this was their misstep. They, cho- they maybe focus on the wrong thing. I also heard that a lot of people have said, like, it would have been more fun to be able to have competing farms and have like a, an overall goal that the players are competing to achieve for their farm rather than this cooperative nature. But uh, yeah, I, d- I definitely do want to play it and, and, and try it for myself and form my own opinion. But I think you're, you're right. That's very easy to, to misstep in that, in that direction when you're trying to adapt something. To, to finish my thought though, as well, different game, but the other game that I have that, that has a, pre-established IP is Leland you'll remember I purchased like the deluxe edition of the Battletech uh, Kickstarter in fact I think you pointed it out to me now when that arrived part of that game involves a deck where you draw pilots and Kickstarters were able to create their own pilots and the point I'm trying to make here is that in the effort to get Kickstarters and kick people to kick at a higher level that allows themselves to like be in the game or be a create a character in the game. Like I found there, I'm sure there were more, but there were at least two pilots that I think are game breaking. Number one, some dude decided to put his two infant twins in the game as a pilot somehow, 
And the twins have like terrible piloting skills because they're literally two babies on a card. And when I saw that, I'm like, this is weird and ridiculous. And then someone else put in a um, a psychologist pilot who's anti-war. So she doesn't even fight. When you draw her, it's like drawing a penalty card that, you know, fucks <laughs> over your deck. And there's like this long story about how she's a psychologist to like deprogram mech warriors because their life is so stressful. Whatever the flavor text on that. But you draw that card, you're going to be like, fuck, I have an unusable pilot because she doesn't want to fight. And my, I guess my overall point would be is an IP needs to be pretty tightly controlled. And maybe that goes back to what you guys were saying about having the content creator be more involved. I wonder how much Eric Barone was involved in the creation of the Stardew Valley board game. Because for it to be so different from the experience of his video game, I really wonder how much oversight he had. Interesting. And I also wonder if sometimes that might be how you experience the game, but maybe there's people out there who experience it differently and relate it to the, the board game that like they, they, they think it does feel like Stardew to them. I mean, I'd have to play it, you know, to even be able to speculate, but uh, which we should now that uh, we can see each other in real life again. You know, that's kind of fun. I think I've seen Leland more in the last month than I've seen him in the last two and a half yeah, years. Yeah, we were so. t- talking about the, the uh, when I was over there the other weekend. You know, I, I yeah, yeah, I thought he. Go, go ahead. ahead. What's your fucking smart no. ass remark? No, I, yeah, it, it was a smart ass remark. I was gonna say, I, I was gonna say, I thought you were a deep fake the last two years. So it's good to see you in person. You know, some people still believe that I am just a sophisticated AI. So I have yet to <laughs> confirm that I am a real person. You know, I, I wonder, though, with the, in the case of Battletech, again, very specific, but is that, uh, and, you know, I, I'm going to agree with your point about the IP does, like, there needs to be a semblance of control to, to, to maintain the quote-unquote purity of the intellectual property and the adaptation of it. But is that a problem of this adaptation of the intellectual property, or is this a problem of the method that they were forced to have to take, a.k.a. crowdfunding, to be able to try to emulate the intellectual property. Because obviously this additional, this is a, a product of Kickstarter and additional pledge levels, right? Like you, like you mentioned. Yeah. That if, if there, if this was a, if this was created and funded in a different way, that those cards would never have existed, would that make this adaptation of uh, an intellectual property that you enjoy feel more on in, in line with what the IP is supposed to represent? I, I would say you're correct on that completely. I think we've discussed it on the podcast before, but I'm not sure. But the longer time goes on, the more biased I am against Kickstarters and like pre-sales, like pre-release sales on Steam for games. Something is really going wrong with this business model because consistently you see either, in the case of the Battletech board game, people creating game breaking cards because they're allowed to create a card or in the case of steam pre-release sales the developer if it's popular gets so much money they can kind of just sit on their ass and not finish the game and you're seeing that in a lot of cases i actually think it's it's almost an endemic sickness within the release of modern digital video games and i know i could be opening a whole can of worms here But, like, I have yet to buy a pre-released game on Steam and have the developers like, 
yeah, we're really going to finish this as quickly and as well as possible. You, I legitimately have never seen that. I have instead seen longer and longer times between updates, less and less being updated. Uh, yeah, I agree, but it, but Factorio, I will say, Factorio, all hail Factorio. They actually released a 1.0, and they, I yeah. don't think they took... I mean, they took a while, but they always release solid content, solid updates, and they still update it, but they, they're out of uh, they're out of beta. So it does happen, but you're right. You know, something like Baldur's Gate 3, which I, I bought for, you know, full 80, full price, $80 uh, two years ago now. And I don't think they've released more than the first of three acts. Oh. And I don't know if they're further than that and they just haven't released it into the beta. But yeah, I, I have this feeling that we're still three years out from that. So wow. I paid eighty dollars for a third of a game that was broken at the time. Like that—that's bullshit to me. Yeah. You know, the only reason I—I'll be enjoying it in the future is I already own it. Right. And they make some—they make some solid fucking games, but that doesn't stop me from being pretty fucking disappointed. You know, this wasn't something where hey, we're releasing this and it's gonna be out in six months. And like Moby was saying, we're gonna haul some ass. Thanks for all the money. We're gonna put it towards production. It was more like, hey, we have an unfinished product. Do you want to buy it early? It's not going to be ready anyways. And we know we can get $80 off of you. So right. you, you, they, get a vaca- they get a vacation two years early, basically. Yeah, but I mean, the, how, how is that just not... That's just a Ponzi scheme because they're just taking yeah, in your money is. to fund a, a future product, a project with the previous... Like, It's the same fucking thing that Space Coat Productions was doing. Well, then they're not... The, the initially back in, in the day they would have patreon to to uh fund their games right or or whatever or kickstarter uh for uh, yeah kickstarter for um a divinity one and two before they were big before they were a big studio but they didn't use that for this game because it's Baldur's gate 3 they have a bit more backing but they still pre-release they still released into beta so it was essentially the same thing they just did it part way through in development rather than before. I feel like with that and with the price, it was kind of it, it was iffy, right? Like if you're if you're paying into a Kickstarter, you're paying twenty nine bucks for a game you're gonna get, and hey, this is the only way we're gonna fund this game, and here's some stretch goals, blah blah blah. I get it, right? Like you know, especially if you follow through. I don't know how many of these actually fucking follow through, but um, in this case, they certainly have not to my, to what i've expected anyways um but at the same time i don't know what they really promised i think they pretty much just said here's our unreleased game pay us money and i i have smart i, I of course paid them, right, <laughs> paid right. them 80 dollars. so so maybe i also don't like money <laughs> well so here's the thing about kickstarter in relation to the tabletop board game hobby is our industry obviously it's been a, it's a crazy boon for the industry in like 20 like 12 13, 14, 15, all the way uh, up until recently, uh, which I feel like there's a downward trajectory for it now. Especially, like, personally, there is for me. I agree with you, Moby. I'm over Kickstarter. But the thing about that it seems to me about Kickstarters is that dep- unless you are like a company like Simon Games that routinely will bring in over a million dollars for their games, for their Kickstarters, uh, for their board games, which they have no need to continue using Kickstarter for, in my opinion, that they could take, you know, the 10% or whatever the Kickstarter takes to put into their own fucking pre-order system 
on their website why they uh, whatever something I've bitched about on the show before. But it seems to me that you're a smaller designer. Again, this this platform allows a single person to get on there and have a dream, an idea, and make it have it come to fruition. Now, those individuals and those smaller design design uh, companies, board game companies, it seems to me that, yes, they can get these projects done, but they are not making money on them. They make a small bit of money, not enough to fund future projects, which is why they have to continually rely on the platform. So while the platform is injecting a larger number and a larger variation and a whole vastly widening scale of quality of games into the market and and almost artificially, it feels like, pumping up the industry, it's not actually growing the industry as far as sustainability goes. It's it's not. And I have a, I have a major thought on that, which is they don't, these companies don't, the smaller companies, don't have a good business model or maybe any business model because Kickstarter by its very name, by the very definition behind it when it was founded was to give these companies a boost to get started. But then once they were started, they would sell their product in a traditional way. So for board games, you know, whether that's in hobby shops or whatnot, what I think you're seeing is companies that don't actually know how to run a business and they have poor evaluations on what they need. They just throw shit at the wall and say, you know, I can publish this board game for 200000 or 600000 or whatever. The biggest death knell, the biggest spike in the heart that I've seen for a Kickstarted project is that as soon as it's finished, the developer releases an email saying they are now starting their campaign on an alternative service, a smaller Kickstarter type service. The moment you hear that, that project is pretty fucked. I can guarantee you. And it's because they, like you said, Leland, they don't have the business plan or the money to sustainably sell the product. Essentially what they have, if they do everything right, is they can satisfy the people that kickstarted it, but then they have nothing left. They don't have, they don't have distribution deals. They don't have like a warehouse full of stock. They don't have logistics plans. And therein, I think, lies the problem. But then explain. I'll push back on that a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm going to too. Because explain to me then how Kickstarter as a platform can actually boost up a company and make a company profitable. Because if you, unless your item blows up, if you have a goal of thirty thousand dollars, and say thirty thousand dollars, you've already approximated would get you a run of two thousand copies of whatever this is. Let's call it a, a board game. And again, these are just random numbers, obviously. And you meet your goal and you may be exceeded by five grand or so. And, you know, so that's what another few hundred copies. But you so you have your profit margin built into that, right? Say you have a X percentage profit margin. But if it's a 20 percent profit margin, then that means you have 20 percent of that money to make copies outside of this platform to then sell. So how if and that would ultimately result in a smaller print run, which means less profits, right? And as opposed to your your game blowing up and say you have a thirty thousand dollar goal, but you, you know, you 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 make like a hundred times that you make three hundred thousand or or three million or whatever, you know, ten to ten to x amount of times the pledge goal, 
which means obviously you're going to have a, a larger print run, which means lower cost because of volume and then your profit margin increases. But I just don't understand how this platform itself can possibly make a company profitable by Kickstarter. Like it doesn't kickstart anything. It kickstarts a project. It's not kickstarting companies. But but my point is, is that these companies are getting their evaluations wrong. And if they had a correct business plan, their Kickstarter would be to the correct amount of money that they would be able to supply for marketing needs, uh, shipping and logistics, uh, you know, all, all those things to get a sustainable company going. My point is, is that these companies are getting it wrong by not having business plans. But the math doesn't work out. Even if they have the companies that have a logistics chain and like, you know, this, this board game company that has a warehouse, that's their logistics chain. It's already in place, right? They've already established. And then they're charging. Now you can't show me a, a, a Kickstarter project that charges you for shipping upfront. Every project is charging you shipping after the project is done. You don't even know what the shipping cost is going to You just have to agree and you'll pay the shipping for what it is because that is one area, especially for board games, that in the beginning people like you say, had just no concept of managing for and lost money because of shipping charges being way higher than they they had experience for, they had knowledge of. So like you say, it went in unprepared. But even if they're prepared for it, I just don't understand the math of being able to turn that company into being self-sufficient outside of the platform. Well, I think what they're getting wrong too is I mean, I went into Kickstarter in the beginning thinking that I was going to get, say, a board game cheaper than it would sell retail. I actually think the opposite should be true in an ideal world where you're paying to get the product first or with deluxe special one-off bonuses, but that by paying a higher amount for the product, that does fund those additional games or logistics. And I would agree with you in that if a Kickstarter is made so that they're selling the game to the Kickstarters at the regular profit margins and they've got nothing left over, of course, the math doesn't add up. They're not going to have a sustainable business. It seems like the most profitable Kickstarters have been pre-established companies, companies that already have, you know, this this fan base. And it, was it really even necessary for them to do a Kickstarter? It just seems like they was just, hey, this is just money money in our pockets rather than going and getting a loan from the bank to do this, to fund this. You know, it, it gives us capital to work with right away. And to Moby's point about these companies where they have an extended, like another website after the first month where they continue this like campaign. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it can feel weird, but at the same time, it's just the same thing. It's still just paying for, I mean, usually they have a, a you know, a... And at least a, a, you know, a working prototype of whatever it is that they're going to release, you know, the, maybe after the first month, they either made what they wanted to, maybe not enough to get their stretch goals, whatever, you know, they're just going to, they're basically just selling it. They're, they're just pre-sales. Everything's just a pre-sale. I mean, is it really, is that really all it is in a glorified way is this is where you can say, hey, I'm a big fan. I want to buy this a year in advance. Uh, and if you can make it some sort of exclusive of some sort, you know, there's there was a big Kickstarter recently from the author Brandon Sanderson, and he released a but he basically sat during uh, the pandemic wrote four books in addition to all the other books he'd been writing, 
and just had all the manuscripts and thought, hey, I'll release them as a Kickstarter. So you could buy them as either like the physical copy or the whatever, you know, the digital, the audible, or you could buy big like loot crates, essentially, like monthly releases of his swag. Uh, some of his options were six hundred dollars, you know, American for his for his Kickstarter. He made forty four million dollars <laughs> in a month, and then wow. he still he still and he still has another website at now that you can go to and now pre purchase for a certain amount of time. It's hard for me to say he wasn't successful, you know, having that continued website. He's just saying, hey, this is really good. I might as well make an extra couple million. You know, people want this stuff. It's both beneficial for him and beneficial to his fans. But that just speaks to Kickstarter. It, he didn't need Kickstarter. Kickstarter didn't make Brandon Sanderson. It was just an easy way for him to make the money up front. I agree with you that that's an ideal Kickstarter. Sure, but is it is it really necessary? Like, well, I was just going to say, in, in that event, he also already has all the logistics stuff. Because he's just going to... Oh, yeah. It's just going to take, take advantage of the same... Uh, production and distribution that he has for his previous novel. So obviously that's already the foundation is already there in this case as well. I don't know. I mean, speaking of Stonemaier games, like they used to, they started kickstarting and eventually they no longer use Kickstarter. They have grown and, and been able to stop using Kickstarter and haven't for a number of years. I'm not sure what the difference, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, Jamie Stegmar has extensive like blogs about, Kickstarter tips and his own experience and all this stuff that for those that are, you know, interested in reading it can definitely find them and then maybe get a better grasp on what it was like and what exactly needed to be done and what didn't, you know, what wasn't done. Obviously he had his own missteps and miscalculations, uh, especially dealing with a newish platform, you know, at the time that, uh, he was dealing with it. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> We we again we kind of tangented hard in we yeah we definitely tangented. Yeah. I'm thinking what was this topic originally? <laughs> what was this segment? Uh, we 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 were talking about Marvel and like yes. Phase Five. <laughs> right, you know Disney Disney needs to kickstart Phase Six is what they need to do. <laughs> they might. Don't say that out loud. <laughs> no, don't. Disney on Kickstarter will like make me lose faith in humanity. It's like, yeah, no, you do, do, you, do you want Frozen 3, little girls? Well, you better your steal your mom's fucking credit card. <laughs> if you pay $1,500, you'll be animated in the background, little girl. <laughs> <laughs> you can see your initials on Sven's shit. Oh. Uh. Okay, well, we've lost the thread here, so let's move on to the next segment. All right, the next segment, which is our final segment, which is Movie Musings. Five flicks for five years, which really is more than just flicks. It also includes television slash streaming. Uh, pretty simple segment here, listener, to, to end us off. You know, since the five years when we started uh, in 2017, I just wanted everybody to review the movies the streaming slash TV that they have been watching properties created in 2017 or after, um, or I guess they could have new episodes released in 2017, whatever. But I just wanted us to do a top five. So in typical T-HUD podcast style, we will go around one by one, starting with our number five and working our ways up to our number ones. So I was thinking with this segment, 
I will kick off this segment, not because it's my segment, but because everybody else started off the topics on their segments. Um, so uh, I have a few that are going to surprise you guys where you're going to be like, these are random Moby pulls. And then I think a few are going to be obvious when you think about them. My number five of my top 10 movies, TV or streaming I have seen in the past five years. I am going with the film, The Disaster Artist. Even I though I never talked about it. I knew this was going to be on your bloody list. I, I knew it would be too. Really? This movie's garbage. What w- the Moby, fuck? W- w- real quick, was this in your top 10 of the 2010s? Because... It might have been, but fuck it. It's still going to be... This movie's very overrated. Holy I, shit, this movie is I laughed stupid. so hard. I, I laughed oh so hard I thought God, it was going to so have medical distress. Dumb. Holy shit. My friend Alex and I were hugging each other, squealing in the theater at how hilarious it was. Are you guys even fans of The Room? Or is this just, like, is this a cult thing that only I like and you two don't like it? Well, like, I don't get why you don't like this. First of all, nobody likes The Room. Everyone is aware of The Room and the memes. That's it. Nobody actually likes The Room. That's the point of The Room. room. No, you do not. You like the idea. Moby didn't understand the movie. You, so he thought the disaster no, you was, do not. Was, was a biopic about a great film. <laughs> that Look. is vintage Leland right there. No, you do not you like. Do not you, like. Just <laughs> like it. you do not like. This. You do not like. You said that with such authority. Because okay, you I don't. don't. Like you do not enjoy the movie for being a movie. Stop. You like the legacy of it. You like <laughs> making fun of it. You like the memes of it. That is what you and everyone else likes. It's you hilarious. You don't like the room. I love okay, it. Well, he, he didn't pick the room. He picked the disaster artist. Stop picking on Moby. I hate this movie. I, I this came back to defend Moby. <laughs> the only thing better right now is that that movie starred Matt Smith. This is amazing. <laughs> I just yeah. Leland, I, why do you why why okay, Leland? Why do you hate the fucking disaster? I agree with Oscar Marty. Oscar winning film or I, Oscar nominated film. I agree with Marty that it is ridiculously overrated. I did not find it funny. I didn't laugh. I didn't. I didn't. I just did not like. It. I really like James. I Franco. did not. I did not. I did not I, laugh. I, I hate it. I do hate it. I I don't know. I just it did not fire on any cylinder for me. Not at all. Oh, yeah, I don't hate it. I just don't. I wouldn't put it in my top no, five. No, you hate top it. Ten or, or, <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I have not laughed this hard since the disaster art. Well, is this going to be your top five move streaming for like the next time we do this? Does Probably. That count? It's so so high quality. How could it be knocked off this list? I mean, I guess it is number five, but uh, this, this right. is an amazing. <laughs> okay, let's let's go. Uh, next, let's go Marty, and then we'll go Leland. We'll go around. Marty, what's your number five? Yeah. Uh, hey, did you manage to organize your uh, numbers there, Leland? Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> Stole for time. Because we're we're almost there. Uh, yeah. So I had some some, some honorable mentions uh, <laughs> in the last hundred years. Uh, Leland, take your time. Um, <laughs> uh, some honorable mentions I put just because uh, this is. I included obviously some TV series in there since Moby said I could, and I'm glad because I feel like I have more TV series that I enjoyed in the past five years. Uh, some honorable mentions for TV were Arcane, which I don't think Moby's seen. I really like that first season; it's really good. Uh, it's an adaption of um, 
uh, League of Legends, uh, of all things. Uh, they made a really awesome animated series on... Is it uh, Prime? Netflix. It's on? I can't remember. Oh, no, it's Netflix. Right, Netflix, yeah. Uh, really good. Uh, we're definitely worth a watch. Um, the Boys, which, of course, is awesome. And uh, I would say that came very close to being in my top five, especially after the last season, which... W- I, Moby, have you seen the last season yet? I have not. I gotta Ooh. catch up. Save the show, man. It's save the show. It's after awesome. After two... Does yeah. Homelander do amazing shit in season three? Homelander is fucking awesome in season three, and but he's not the only thing that's awesome in season no, three, right? Far, so yeah. it it doesn't feel like it's just the Homelander carrying the show anymore. Good. I put the Mandalorian uh, as a honorable mention. Didn't crack top five, but I really enjoyed it. And I put Peacemaker because Peacemaker was fucking fun. <laughs> uh, I mean, just the just the intro alone yeah, uh, might God make damn. Peacemaker a number six. <laughs> so good. Yeah. But uh, for my number five was a movie, actually. I picked Parasite. Oh, I was wondering if this was going to make someone's list. I don't know if you guys have seen Parasite. Yep, I have. I really liked Parasite. I've only seen it the one time. I think I owed another because I had to split. I did that thing where you split it into two because uh, my wife and I had to go to bed. And I think that took away a little bit from the experience. But uh, it does a great job uh, with its cinematography of like showing these hierarchies of people and uh, like essentially it's a a movie about classism and uh it's just all about bad people basically it does a great job just showing just everyone's awful inherent nature and everyone's kind of greedy and piggish and it's it's good it's a good movie it doesn't suffer for subtitles at all it's just it's worth a watch for sure i think you'd enjoy it moby well yeah first uh foreign movie ever to win best uh picture Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah yeah, so see it. Yeah, that interests me. Now that you tell me the synopsis, that actually sounds very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh, in- interesting uh, dynamics at play, and uh, the way they film it is really, really cool. Sorry, Marty, it's Korean, right? Like, it is. Korean? See, it's interesting because the all-time most watched, at least it was, YouTube video, Gangnam Style, the uh, uh, music video, is a insult. It's, it's, a, it's sarcasm against Gungam district in south korea which is very classist it's very wealthy mm. clean like shopping gucci all those famous places and and if you like sai was insulting it so it's interesting that there's a movie that the south koreans made about speaking that speaking of that just turned 10 years old like last month or in wow. july yeah <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Hey, what does the fox say was also 2012? Oh, boy. Anyways, Leland, what have you got? Good pick. My number five is the... What does the Leland say? My number five is the second entry in Mike Flanagan's like anthology series, The Haunting of Blind Manor. I really... Oh, wow. I mean, I love horror. The Haunting on Hill House was really good, too, but I really think the second entry just hit it, it it hit more emotional beats for me the ending of it was just great i loved it do i need to watch the f- first no series no no they're, they're not connected they, they share some same actors but they're not the same characters um yeah it was really great i mean i i don't know if it was like just kind of where i was at in my at the point that i was at in watching it because it was like kind of you know in the middle of the pandemic and i just just remember like watching it and i was you know, sitting on the couch, just knitting and watching it. I'm like, okay, this is great. And I was just so engrossed in it. I, yeah, just, yeah. Well, hold on. Knitting. 
Yeah, and I'm a knitter. Did you knit what is behind you? I did, yeah. All these panels, I, ma- I made these panels. So I don't know if it was just like the point I was and like, you know, it was also kind of freshish in my relationship with Emma. So it was like... So a horror, a horror series was much needed. Like, <laughs> so, uh, it was a nice juxtaposition to the paradise that I was experiencing with a girlfriend uh, who lives nine thousand miles away. <laughs> I see. So I don't know if that influences, but I think it's really it's it's definitely worth watch, especially if you liked Haunting of Hill House too. Okay. Well, yeah, that's interesting. And you're right. You know, a lot of what we enjoy is experiencing it at the right time. Yeah. That's something that I've come to realize more and more with what I partake in. It's like you can find there's things for seasons of your life. I mean, some things might carry on forever. I think Moby's definitely the type of person where if he likes something, he'll like it for the next 50 years. Yeah. But for a lot of people, it's like, you know, you'll have friends for a season, but you'll you'll have like books for a season. You'll have TV series for a season. And sometimes they resonate just right and, and they will like, they're there forever. They're always, they will always hold a place in your heart. So it's kind of cool that that's, that's why that did that for you. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes. My number four, this one, I, again, I thought the disaster artist was an off the board pick, but you guys expected it. This would be the other of my four remaining that I consider off the board, which is a movie called I, Tanya starring Margot Robbie. Anyone think this one might be on the list? Now. No, no, I didn't. I didn't realize you liked it so much. I haven't actually seen it. I love this movie to death. It is satirical. It is hilarious. The performances are great. I think this was the first movie that Margot Robbie uh, had her production company do as well. So she was like really invested in doing a really good job of it. Uh, supporting actress Allison Janney. She either won or was nominated for an Oscar for playing uh, uh, Tanya Harding's mom. Um, just great performances all around. It has the, uh, sorry, I have to say this because I forget his name, but like the fat security guy, Stingray, Stingray, Stingray. from Cobra Kai. Yeah, he's great. Cobra Kai. And he, he plays the guy that actually kneecaps Nancy Kerrigan, <laughs> the figure skater. He is awesome because he could, he totally has to deadpan the fact that he thinks like he's made up that he's like some CIA agent that is like, sent and like had this past of doing black ops all over the world which is total bullshit but the thing is he's convinced himself of that so that when he talks to the cops or like the media he's speaking like he's telling the truth but you know he's not it's like a really nuanced uh performance that's really good sebastian stan plays jeff galuli uh her abusive husband and their relationship is really fucked but i mean honestly he's not in a ton and he's never leading man, but is Sebastian Stan ever bad? Like, really, he nails, like, almost everything he does. Um, I mean, he was in, you know, Pam and Tommy. He was great as Tommy. And uh, obviously great as Winter Soldier, Bucky Barnes. So, yeah, he's in it. I mean, Marty, I think you would like it. Out of you and Leland, I think you would like it the, the most. And you're welcome to borrow it. I have it on DVD. But I'm pretty sure it's on either Netflix or Disney Plus now. I... I... I think so, yeah. I, I've seen it a few times being advertised on various streaming services. I just haven't, you know, bucked up and sat down and watched it. Um, yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, and I will give my one honorable mention that, uh, well, it was not 
Matrix uh, Revolutions, I or Matrix uh, Resurrection, whatever the fuck it was, Resurrection, it, and it's Love Death Robots, that TV show. Oh, cool. I really like that. Uh, it's hit or miss certain segments, but as we've talked about it outside of the podcast, I feel like I find it more hit than the rest of T Hud does. Are they on season two? Three. 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 Wow. I think my favorite one from season three was the one on the boat with a giant crab. Ooh, that animation was creepy. That's man. a that really whole cool story one. was creepy. That's as a really thought. cool one, yeah. It's like so slimy you want to take like a shower after to get like the crab guts and people guts off you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good honorable mention. I like it. I'll take a crab juice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll crab it at a high Crack-a-lash. price. <laughs> uh anyways marty let's go with your number four yeah uh i'll just quickly throw out my uh my movie uh honorable mentions i didn't put this one in because i didn't want to argue with leland uh joker was an honorable mention yes. um yes! he he got mad at me in the the 10 top 10 of the 2010 <laughs> so yeah you were very mad about that and babadook you wanted to like <laughs> kill me over saying Babadook. Uh, you were so angry. I was laughing so hard listening to it. Thankfully, Babadook is 2014, so we can't put that one in here. Uh, otherwise, otherwise it would be. Logan was an honorable mention. Yeah, same. 20, 2017. Ooh. Thor Ragnarok. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Infinity War Part 1 and 2, I think as a as a just a spectacle was amazing. And then uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, all just some pretty cool cool movies in the last five years but my number four was one i don't think either of you have seen it's uh another taika ytt film it's jojo rabbit you liked it that much eh yeah i really like jojo rabbit i I watched it uh on a sunday and then i still had the rental so i watched it again on a monday with ariel yeah it's it's pretty funny it's it's just a funny like heartfelt movie i think it it nails his type of movie perfectly yeah yeah and have you seen it leland i have yeah yeah, yeah, I I really liked it. I, again, one of those movies. I think I watched it. It just got me in the right mood at the right time. I had a little bit of uh, marijuana in my body, and it <laughs> uh, it made me laugh. It made me not cry, but you know, have a, have the things called emotions. And uh, yeah, it was it was a good time. <laughs> okay, nice. Uh, yeah, I shied away from putting anything uh, Marvel or MCU in in my list. Um, otherwise. Yeah, a lot of it, like, I mean, even, yeah, Logan was a front runner too. Just, anyways, my, but speaking of superhero, my number four is actually Jack Snyder, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Whoa. Nice. And it is, o- it's really only because of what this movie is and how it came to be. I just felt like it was something monumental and could potentially happen again, become more frequent. I don't know. And honestly, I did really actually like the whole cut, the actual cut. Like I really did enjoy it, especially just what they did with Step Steppenwolf was such a cool character in this cut in this version, just far superior. I just liked being able to get a little bit more from all the the rest of the league as well. There's a little bit too much cyborg. I could have done with maybe cutting that back a little bit, but I don't know. I just I just thought this this thing existing is just a a, a phenomenon. It's interesting when you hear everything surrounding what happened there and with Joss Whedon coming in yeah. and the amount of like, I mean, he's basically been canceled at this point uh, as much as you can cancel a, you know, a famous director of his stature. I, 
everything that's come out about him and that movie and his other uh intellectual properties as well makes you realize that like it made Zack Snyder that much more beloved for coming in and then having that opportunity. Right. Uh, and even though like, you know, we've all shit on Snyder in the past that he, he's basically a one hit wonder in some ways. Like he, he's kind of, <laughs> you know, I, I think he peaked at Watchmen. Yeah. Oh myself, yeah. 100%. You know, <laughs> like I think he was born on the top of the mountain and has just been rolling downhill since in his career. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, like three, 300 and Watchmen, right? And, right. You know, even though Watchmen has its detractors, to me, it's one of the best straight comic book adaptions yes, of all time. 100%. And, you know, even, and again, it's, it's four hour cut is pretty fucking awesome too. So, uh, I think he, he can't like edit himself effectively. He tells long form stories, you know, but they're not quite TV series either. So, it's kind of funny that they basically split his movie up into a into a TV episode chunks for HBO Max. I haven't seen it yet, but it, just because of the time, the time commitment's fucking ridiculous for a movie. But um, I know that's never stopped Leland in the past. So uh, yeah, if it's your top four, that's that's pretty fucking good. Yeah, Marty, I can definitely like boost it. Um, I had the unique experience in that I had not seen the Whedon cut or the Snyder cut but I specifically picked a weekend to watch them back to back. There is no comparison in the quality. I was shocked how terrible the Whedon cut was in comparison to the Snyder cut. Interesting. It was as if some unengaged, overpaid person, i.e. Whedon, was given a script, and then someone super engaged, like sad to say, encouraged or like inspired by his daughter's death, working with his wife, who he works with on a lot of his movies, Snyder, was like totally engaged in making the best version of this script. Yeah. Well, the fact that they came back and shot more scenes for it. like And good scenes. It wasn't yeah. like filler shit. It was like, it was shit that you're like, why wasn't this in the original cut? It makes no sense. You know, actors sometimes complain, but, you know, the actor who played Cyborg, he did have a hill to stand on when you see how little of him existed in the Whedon cut. I mean, you're, you almost wonder, like, why was he even there? And he's given, without trying to spoil it, he's given a critical, critical part in the Snyder cut, um, as well as really good character development. That's what I've heard, yeah. But, yeah, I, I agree with the actor on that. And I would I would say without hesitation... You know, if Snyder has been rolling down the hill, well, he started rolling down from Watchmen and he tried to grasp the ledge of Snyder cut and then he fell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I do. I do need to correct you on one thing. He made his version of this film. He was pumped to make his version of this film. His version in his in this cut is not the best cut of this film. And again, we when we reviewed the film, we talked about that. This is his version and he got to make his version but again there's a there's a there's a spot between whedon and his version that is the best version of this movie oh yeah i i agree with what you're saying there i think even looking at like the four-hour watchman cut it's like that's not necessarily nothing not everything in there needs to be in there to make the best possible movie right but it's like it depends where you're at as a fan right there's a difference between sitting in a theater for, you know, a, a brisk two hours, 15 minutes and watching The Dark Knight, which is, you know, your 
basically on the edge of your seat the whole time or something like matt reeves batman for three hours which is a little bit more of a slow burn it's just you know it, it definitely feels like it's a little more drawn out it's a little more meticulous it's, it's just a different type of film but um maybe in this case there was a balance between those two films that uh studios just couldn't couldn't come up with um i mean who knows you know unless you were there in the editing room who knows what was who did what you know who really made those final decisions with the whedon cut i mean but from what i've heard it sounds like the influence of of him on whatever product was existing at the time was huge like it just changed the film drastically good good pick though there leland i like yeah that that made a good discussion there so my top three all should not be surprises to you guys, perhaps just the order that they're in. Uh, my number three is the first TV series on, on my list, one of two TV series, and it is Cobra Kai. Co- Cobra Kai is just consistently excellent for me. Uh, it hits all the right balance between nostalgia and a new story. In general terms... Like 70-80% of the time, I like what they do with all of the characters, including the new characters. I like the characters they brought in, uh, the legacy characters. I do hope to see a few more, but we've got two seasons left. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the marijuana, uh, one of my first experiences with marijuana, <laughs> experience that actually was that actually worked, was, uh, was watching it with uh, Ghost Marty and his wife. They... Uh, they're released from hell on New Year's Eve, and I saw it with them. So, <laughs> I mean, we're we're basically like uh, in a Tim Burton movie. Like we get to like leave a nightmare, like the Nightmare Before Christmas, <laughs> and then come come there and <laughs> and partake and partake in drugs and grumpy Leland. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it, it, that was a fun night. It, I I don't think that's the best way to experience that series <laughs> for sure. You know, I. I don't think that would be in my top five, but it might be in my top ten. Now that I think about it, it to me the mo- the series has flaw- flaws that detract from me listing it as my favorites. But I've never not been entertained watching it. It's it does keep your attention. Some seasons are better than others, uh, but if you're just talking about a series that started and is still going in the last five years, it's a pretty good pick. Leland, any thoughts on Cobra Kai? I definitely, definitely on the short list for sure. Like you say, it knows exactly what it is and it doesn't shy away from what it is. It's not apologetic about what it is and where its roots come from and what it's paying homage to and what it wants to build into and how corny it is. It routinely makes fun of it being a show about rival karate dojos. Like it knows what it is and it's just enjoyable. Yeah, that, that's what I like about, uh, I'm going to pronounce her last name wrong um, because I don't have it memorized, but Daniel Sun's wife, Courtney Hein Heinlegger or something like that is the actress's name. She in the show consistently breaks the fourth wall in a way, or maybe breaks the third wall because she's constantly showing how stupid these interpersonal conflicts and like the fact that they're having like karate dojo wars in one small part of California and She's awesome because like through through all the seasons, she she's there every once in a while just to remind you how ridiculous the show is. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, that's that's my number three. So, Marty. 
Yeah, my number three is the TV series on Amazon Prime, Invincible. Moby, you haven't seen this one. It's only one season right now. It's based on a comic book series. I think it's by by Robert Kirkman, the same guy who did The Walking Dead. It's a really solid one-season series so far. It has like a all-star cast in it jk simmons uh oh fuck what is that guy? what is glenn from the walking dead what's the actor's name i'm blanking on it glenn it, ha- it has glenn in it and uh <laughs> you know it's got it's got a few a few other like notables that you, you'd recognize their voices uh but just as a whole it's a great animated series it subverts your expectations if you don't know what you're getting into going going into it i think it's really worth a watch it was a pretty easy pick for top five for sure Steven Yun. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, no, great. I mean, uh, Zachary, uh, Zachary Quinto, Mark Hamill has a role. Yeah, Quinto's in it. Seth Rogen. Mark has Hamill. A, Mark role. Hamill has a role. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good pick, oh, man. This list was just too difficult. Seriously, too difficult to, to make. I mean, there's just so many things that you just forget about. That's and need it, the right? reminder, and you're like, "Why is this not my list?" Because Invisible is great. Oh man, that's like so my show. It's so up my alley. Yeah, yeah. My number three though uh, is relatively new. It's Reacher, uh, starring Alan Richson. Oh, oh wow, man, this was so entertaining. I love this so much. Alan Richson is a fucking monster. The fight in the fight <laughs> scenes in this. Th- oh, they're so fucking brutal. It's like so tense and he's he's so like he's he's great as reacher and i've never read any of the books so i have and actually i haven't seen like the tom cruise movies either so i really have no context for what this character is supposed to be but i just loved how he was portrayed in this tv series like it's it's so good it seems like people who like the series like the portrayal who like who like yeah. the book series i heard that too actually yeah like they're saying like finally we have the beast that reacher is supposed to be kind of thing and you know what, Alan is. I I re, I'm a big I'm a fan of him as an actor. Just everything that he's in uh, and and have done to this point. I mean, what's that? Uh, what's that comedy movie with the football team? Damn, what is that show called? Oh shit! What is that? Is it Blue Blue Mountain State? Is that it? Yes, it is Blue Mountain State. Thank you. He's fucking. He's hilarious, and that that show's really funny too. But I don't know. He just. He's great in this role. He's just great. It's it's really it's just entertaining. Um, again, the the story like, I I I was engaged because of Alan. I think more than maybe the plot. So it might not have the same effect on everybody. But I just really 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 enjoyed watching this series. Yeah, don't they make? Didn't one of you guys say it was either Leland or maybe your brother was saying that they constantly make height jokes in that series to like poke fun at Tom Cruise? Everybody that sees them is like. You're a fucking huge, pretty much. Like a <laughs> new person he meets. <laughs> That's great. And it, and it has a it has a great ensemble cast too. Like the the supporting actors are also really good in it as well. Awesome. Awesome. That's a good choice. Well, my number 2 should not be a surprise, but it perhaps might be a surprise that it's not my number 1. But my number 2 is Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, you got it. Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> The one of the only sequels I've ever seen that was made when I was alive that beat the original. I would say Empire Strikes Back beat the original Star Wars, but I wasn't alive then. I absolutely love 2049. Yeah. Uh, Well, for sure you're old. I I am old, but I'm not that old. (laughs) Oh, okay. Are you sure? I thought you were like 47, 48. Am I? 
I don't know. No gray hairs yet, so. Oh, well, that's more than I can say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shot, shots fired. <laughs> shot through the heart, and oh. you're to blame. You give hair a bad name. Okay, so, yeah, no, I just love 2049. Sadly, Denis Villeneuve, like all his movies, he doesn't make any money, but he makes good movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, he's, he's my favorite director of all time. I mean, because all his movies are some of my favorite movies. And he's never made a single movie I've seen that I haven't loved. And he's Canadian, which is icing. Did he make Arrival? Yep. Okay. Which I yeah. love. Watched that recently. He made uh, Sicario, but not Soldado. Though... Those are just alternate versions of the same script. Yeah, it. it I just uh, there's nothing else to say because there's a whole fucking bonus episode on it. But I love 2049, and it's my number two. Cool. But yeah, you can see the bonus episode for my thoughts on the movie. Really tired at two in the morning, so probably not the optimal time. You know, when there's an optimal time to experience something, that wasn't it. <laughs> yeah, my number two is now. This one was it just snuck in. So like the last season came out in 2016 or 2017. Uh, it's the Leftovers uh, HBO series. I think Leland's seen some of it. I'm not sure. Have you seen the Leftovers? I'm. I've got about half of season three to finish. Okay. It ends well. I really liked how it ended. And it's one of those shows very much in... I mean, it's made by like a co-creator of Lost, basically, uh, Damon Lindelof. And it's one of the shows that likes to ask questions but doesn't always answer those questions. It's more about the journey rather than the destination, but it does it very well. And it's probably one of the emotionally impactful series I've ever seen. Basically, uh, do you know what the series is about, Moby? I don't actually, so fill me in. It's basically, uh, there's a, a day where 2% of the Earth's population just disappears. And they are, like, just gone. The Babies, children, people, uh, I don't think animals, but just, like, I can't remember now, but people, 2% of people are gone. And the show's about the 98% that are left. So people don't know what happened. Was it aliens? Was it the end of the world? And the world seems like it's in that beginning stage of being post-apocalyptic because everyone is just fucking, like, miserable. You know, like, they can't figure out, like, how to deal with this fact, the the people who've lost so much. And it's about people who've lost, you know, maybe their whole family. Some of them haven't been affected. Um, there's It's about, like... Um, you know, a, a preacher losing his uh, faith in God and all these different characters. And it does a great job of tying this together with some supernatural elements that don't always pay off, but are always interesting. And it ends really well. And it also has an amazing performance by Carrie Coon, who I think she's in the new uh, Ghostbusters. She's like the, the mom. Yeah. Okay. And she's fantastic in The Leftovers. She plays a interesting character that her whole family disappears. Uh, so she like her two kids and husband are gone, and it, like the the chance of that happening is like one in like seventy million or something stupid apparently. And so she's like the most unlucky person, and it's about her like dealing with that as well. So it's it's a great series. Um, you know, it's it's only three seasons, so it's not like the biggest time commitment in the world, but it's certainly. I think another one that you have to go in at the right time because it's a it's dark and not in a way that's funny inherently. It's just dark. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a. I was wondering if that was going to show up in your list because I know you're a big fan of it, and I really enjoyed it too. I think, like you said, I I started watching it and blitzed through like two and a half seasons of it, and then I fell out of that place and I haven't finished it, and I don't know what happened, but I really do need to. I really want to see how it ends because it's very intriguing. I think, like you said, it it asks just the right amount of questions without providing answers. Like it doesn't ask too many, and most of the time they're questions that actually don't need they're almost like rhetorical questions they don't need to be answered which is is nice because you because like you say you're seeing the characters cope without those answers so it's it's like you're still getting a resolution to a lot of what's going on right it's very much a character driven drama 100 more than the plot device of losing those two percent of people for sure definitely definitely yeah that's what struck me about it too nice nice pick also the the music the music is phenomenal in that series i love it i love the i love the music they pick for the openings i love how it changes i love how uh like the just the orchestral orchestra orchestra that word (laughs) orchestral they don't have words in hell we get it (laughs) it's been a while boys okay it's been a while (laughs) since i had to talk this long uh normally people are laying face down on a table so i don't have to make so much conversation that was my number two well, talking talking about uh, really good series endings, my second pick is The Good Place. Uh, this did start airing in 2016, mm. ended in 2020. Just a fucking phenomenal series. Uh, there's just so many things to say about this show. Everybody in it is great. Kristen Bell. I mean, Ted Dan. How do you not love Ted Danson? How can you not sit Ted down Danson. and watch something with Ted Danson in it and just You're not a human not if you don't. smile. Exactly. If you don't enjoy Ted Danson, you do not enjoy life. And the the series, like they they finish it. It so the great thing about the show is it had a vision and it knew where it wanted to go. And it knew it had it, it had an end point from inception, which is really, I think, is why this is a standout series. And the ending made me cry. It makes you cry. It is touching and heartfelt and sad and you feel like you feel satisfied with the ending it's just really great i dropped out after season three so i should probably finish the last season is what you're telling me it finished on it's finished strong it finished strong okay good my number one does anyone have a guess yeah it's dune nope leland do you have a guess no Well, I will tell you, it is the series, the only series of which I bought a medal off a poor family in Ukraine to display because of my love of this series, which is Chernobyl, one of my favorite historical events, which I obsessively study. I've said since the moment I first saw the series, Chernobyl is the best TV show I've ever seen. According to IMDb, it's the best or the highest rated TV show on their entire site. Interesting. I have seen Chernobyl. It came out. It, it, I was surprised. It only came out in 2019 because I've seen the series like six times. Now, granted, it's only, I think, uh, five episodes, but it's a mini series. But for me to have watched it, you know, five times in in three years is, is pretty cray cray. To me, it's virtually perfect as a mini series for the amount of time that they have to do five episodes, which is not a lot. They frame the episodes with all the important information and again i'm not a historian by trade but i obsessively study the chernobyl event and have since we got this random russian kid in my elementary school 
to be with us for one year because he was escaping something called radiation that I didn't even know what the fuck that was back at the time. And uh, it fascinated me ever since. And I mean, there's nothing, I mean, is my favorite show in the last five years. There's nothing bad I have to say about it. All the acting is fantastic. The makeup, the special effects, uh, the horror of Chernobyl. And um, yeah, I mean, it really scared me when earlier this year, the Russians were actually running tanks outside of Chernobyl and holding the people there that are keeping that facility standing uh, by gunpoint. Uh, <laughs> you know, doing maintenance on it. Having seen the show, it was really, really scary to know that that was occurring in 2022. But uh, I-, I don't have anything else to say. It's it's my favorite TV show I've ever seen. I think it, it's, it was a good series. I just dropped out of it. I don't know. It was one of those ones I got halfway through and it just didn't hook me to w- sit and watch another hour of it. Uh, I, I, I will eventually. I will try. Leland, did you ever watch Chernobyl? No, 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 I didn't. Uh, I should check it out. I kind of forgot about it, actually. Yeah, I actually did, too. I mean, that's why I didn't realize it. That's why I assumed Dune. But um, kind of surprised Dune wasn't on your list, actually. Uh, I, I really like Dune, but um, the problem I have with Dune is it's it's publicly incomplete. Yeah, like, of course. Like, like Denis Villeneuve did, did all along said that, you know, there's a second half to this movie coming. So... Yeah, uh, Dune Dune crossed my mind honestly as like my number five, but I thought no, the the film isn't complete. I can't judge it yet, so that's my logic. Got uh, it. But Leland, if you ever do want to borrow Chernobyl, I've got the Blu-rays anytime, buddy. You're five minutes away, even though I never see you. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but what's your what's your uh, number uh, number one there? Mark? Yeah, my number one is a tv series it's uh the prequel to breaking bad better call saul it's just finished it's just wrapping up right now actually uh the final episodes are dropping in this month i'm re-watching it with my wife right now and it strikes me just how good the acting and the writing in that series is especially after the first season i think it, it again suffers from the same sort of lacking of identity maybe that breaking bad does in the first season it doesn't quite know the show it wants to be it try it starts out a bit funnier a bit more like the stakes are low you don't really know where it's going and it changes as the series goes it it, it basically plays as an opposite to breaking bad where you see this descent of someone into like villainy where in this series you know he's going to become a villain or, or, you know, whatever equivalent of that is. But you don't want him to become that. It's like you're hoping for, like, like somehow it doesn't work out that way. Because it's like, it's about him being a, basically a loser and becoming something more with his life. But failing miserably in a way. And about how it affects all the people surrounding his life and how that leads up to Breaking Bad. It's just written really well. I don't think it's ever, like, failed to really wow me in those moments where it really builds to you know it's definitely a slow burn series there's some episodes that self-contained would be kind of boring week to week i think but watched like especially now sitting down and watching it uh being able to binge it it's it's really kind of nailed that for me it it might be my favorite tv series of the last decade even um it's it's damn good i think it it reminds me of that 
point, like maybe 10, 15 years ago, when I think we were in that like golden age of like cable television with Mad Men and Breaking Bad and, you know, right around the time Game of Thrones started airing, shit like that. And, you know, maybe before everything became so saturated that it's it's right up there for me. So, yeah, it was a kind of an easy pick for number one, honestly. It's it's interesting because, you know, Breaking Bad was such a critically acclaimed show. So many people loved it. I remember when Better Call Saul was announced, I was like, okay, I know it's got the same writing staff and whatever, but I'm like, there's no way they're going to maintain even a close level of quality to Breaking Bad. Like, how? How? How do you match up to it? And then even though I've watched the series, it, it just, it critically, it's acclaimed every year. Like you said, more and more after the first season. Apparently they brought back legacy characters, but not in a uh, uh, like exploitative way. Like they actually fit, like Mike. Well, they they do a pretty good job of fitting Breaking Bad characters into that world. I I mean I think without it being like oh okay they they sort of pigeonholed this guy in here because we wanted to see so and so. They did a little bit I think with some characters, but. It, it minor for the most part the biggest detriment that show has is that sometimes there's two storylines ongoing and they don't intersect very well and that's the story with the cartel and the story with um saul you know it's like and jimmy so uh jimmy being his name before he becomes saul goodman they don't always intersect but when they do it becomes very powerful so and especially now in this last season i think it's really starting to come to a boil and you're really seeing everything like end well uh, so if they stick the landing, which they have four episodes left to do, then it could be one of my, I think it might be one of my favorite series of all time, but they could also bugger it up. I mean, I, I think Breaking Bad didn't stick the landing personally. Like they, the best episode of Breaking Bad is the third to last episode. And that should have been the end. The last two feel like a, uh, epilogue in a way. Um, the, the third to last is where, you know, uh, Walt's Walt has this like come to Jesus moment of here here is the repercussion of your actions and everything big happens in that episode everything else after that is just cake and it's maybe not as it's not as good honestly good explanation yeah no that's good uh, that series has not grabbed me yeah I yeah I know it hasn't yeah I don't know how much of it I actually I have watched I've I think at least two seasons of it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it's not uh, it does not doing it for me. Yeah, uh, it's definitely, you know, I, I it's one of those ones, like, when I started, I wasn't really grabbed by it either, but then by the third or fourth, I think by the fourth, I would buy the series, the season before it aired and watch it every week. And, uh, you know, rather than wait for streaming. And I very rarely do that. So, I mean, the fact that I've, I've, paid for it on on top of uh streaming services i think is uh telling for me so right, yeah right well okay my number one couldn't have been anything else it was spider-man into the spider-verse i just fucking love this movie just love this movie it's just a killer cast jake johnson Haley steinfeld nicholas cage blade marshall Ali, chris pine joey kravis john mulaney like everyone has their own part but man this oh Haley steinfeld who was Who's uh, Vi in Arcane? Uh, she's Kate Bishop in um, Hawkeye series. She's really great in that too. I, this movie's just so good. Oh man, this movie just makes me feel good. It makes me like, it just reminds me of why 
I love Spider-Man so much, right? And it gives me those 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 feels that I got like from Spider-Man. I think I'm t- in our very first episode, I think we we talked about Homecoming. I was talking about, you know, Spider-Man 2 and uh, the when Toby is stopping the uh the subway train. Oh man, it just gives me those types of feels and it, it couldn't have been anything else for me. That's yeah, awesome. that, that's a great one. Um, it easily could have been in my top five. I, I think I just tried to avoid Marvel as a whole for some reason, and I've only seen that one once. And I, that was the other thing is that I, I feel like if I watched it again and it still sat with me the same way, it would definitely be a top five. Now, Leland, me as a casual fan of Marvel and superhero stuff, uh, would I need to do any prep for Into the Spidey Verse, or is it kind of a standalone thing anyone can understand? Yeah, I mean, you'll be fine. Like, it stars Miles Morales. I mean, Chris Pine plays, like, that universe's Spider-Man. I mean, he's great in that role. Like, everybody who gets to play a version of Spider-Man is just so good. Everyone's well, Nick, Nick Cage is the big attraction. Oh, to me, but he's, I wonder yeah. if, like... He plays Spider-Man Noir. He's so fucking funny. He's just so Nick Cage. It's the perfect casting for... The, I, if he's yeah. Nick Cage, if, he, if you say he's so Nick Cage... That alone will make me watch the movie. He's more Nick Cage in that than he is in Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. What? <laughs> it is like stereotypical Cage. And and again, it's like a pretty, it's a relatively small part of the movie. So don't think he's in it for like 30 minutes or screen time or anything. But he's great in it. Like everyone's just, I don't know, just so good. So good. Love it. And, and the, I, I've heard that the animation style, some people aren't a big fan of it. I didn't have any problems with it. I enjoyed it. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a choice. It's a style. It's very stylistic. It's, it's just a choice that was made. I have no problem with it, but I, I've heard that as a complaint for some people. That's awesome. Well, good picks, everybody. I mean, I think uh, listener, you've got some, uh, required viewing. If you, uh, have not seen several of these, uh, shows or, or, or movies, certainly I myself have some, uh, some viewing. Yeah. I'm going to go home and watch the disaster artist after this. <laughs> And you will yeah, love because it because you're in you hell. Love it. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll do end of show stuff, and then we'll send Marty back to hell until the next time we need him. Okay. It's nice people summon him on command, but yeah, this is very convenient. It only takes about a pint of blood too. End of show stuff. Our website is ttpopcast.com. The T podcast on Facebook. TT podcast on Instagram. I'm at Leland underscore Steel on Twitter. That. Is who I've been. I've been Moby, and I just want to say, as always, take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Uh, I can I plug my cameo? Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh fuck. That's it's, that's it's an cam- anti Cameo dot com slash Ghost Marty Jacked Frenchman, and <laughs> it's fifty cents for a five hour video. So very good cost benefit ratio just letting you know i'm also available for personal appearances and birthday parties save your money listener <laughs> bye bye goodbye ghost martin leland you gonna send him back no i refuse and he, he, he wants me to stay I don't want you to have to watch the disaster artist. <laughs> Nobody deserves that punishment. Scream, Marty, as you go back to hell to watch the disaster artist. <laughs> <laughs>